Welcome to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. Temujin Kensu has been in prison for 34 years for a crime he says he did not commit. His case is among the most overwhelming cases of actual innocence anywhere in the country. Temujin Kensu has lived for 34 years behind the walls of Michigan State Prison. In 1987, he was convicted of the murder of a college student, Scott Macklem, in Port Huron and sentenced to life without parole. No one saw the shooting in 1987 of Mr. Macklem that Temujin was convicted of committing. Instead, two men testified to seeing a stranger who possibly resembled Temujin at some point before or after the shooting. One of the witnesses was hypnotized before he testified. Both witnesses vacillated on key details. Temujin was in fact more than 400 miles away from the crime scene at the time of the murder he's convicted for. No less than nine unimpeached neutral alibi witnesses testified to that at trial. The prosecution countered by suggesting that Temujin theoretically could have chartered a plane to go commit the murder and return in time to be seen by his alibi witnesses. The prosecution never offered any actual evidence to support this outlandish theory. Over the years, the jailhouse snitch who implicated Temujin recanted and admitted he received benefits for testifying against Temujin. And a leading eyewitness identification expert reviewed newly discovered photos of the lineup in this case and noted many glaring differences that made Temujin stand out in the lineup, even testifying that it was the most egregiously biased photo lineup she had ever seen in her entire career. Nevertheless, Temujin remains in prison because court after court has refused to review the evidence of innocence and instead turned him down due to procedural technicalities. As for 2021, the Innocence Clinic uh, at the Michigan Law School has represented Temujin for 11 years. In recent months, they submitted Temujin's case for consideration by the newly formed Conviction Integrity Unit at the Attorney General's Office, A.G. Dana Nessel, and her team now have the chance to do what our justice system has sadly failed to do for decades and let this innocent man out of prison. You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Did you say me? Did you say that? I'm holding you until the What'd you say? Fuck you, man. Man. And joining me today is Temujin Kensu from Macomb Correctional Facility in New Haven, Michigan. Welcome to Fair Play, Temujin, and appreciate your time on this. Thank you, Imran, and hello to everybody out there. Oh, you, you heard what I just read. Uh, did I say anything wrong in, in that? Well, actually, I, I just hit my 35-year anniversary on the 13th of this month, so now it's officially 35 years. Which is uh, a 35 years of slap on the faces of everyone at the U.S. Justice Department. Absolutely. Uh, the state and 
federal courts have time and time again refused to do the right thing. Now, there was the, the habeas in 2010 where a phenomenal judge, uh, Denise Page Hood, the uh, chief judge of the U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of Michigan, held in an extensive opinion that I was completely innocent of this crime. She did a, a lengthy analysis of the facts, the misconduct by the prosecution, the police, the judge, and my own attorney as well as Mr. Joplin having uh, been enticed to lie at my trial, which, of course, he admitted prior to passing away. And um, the Sixth Circuit overturned her ruling in a shocking and uh, there's no other way to say it, disgusting uh, misrepresentation of the law on the timeliness of appeals. Um, <clears throat> when they passed the Omnibus Crime Bill and the uh, Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act, it restricted the rights of prisoners to file habeas corpus petitions. When I came to prison, there was no time limit for those things. Unfortunately, and this is something I'm very disappointed that President Biden's done nothing about because he was instrumental in this, um, that limitation took the rights away from a lot of prisoners. They did a time calculation on my case, trying to find any reason to take back my reversal from Judge Hood, which was very eloquent and very well laid out, very thoughtful, by saying, oh, well, you're, you're late under the AEDPA. Now, technically, you can't be late when you're innocent. So then they have to attack your innocence claim. And uh, as you've noted, and experts around the world have noted, actually, my case is the strongest case for innocence uh, available for review anywhere. And um, unfortunately, the Sixth Circuit, headed by David W. McKeague, a federal judge that I had run-ins with in the past, wrote a terrible and very dishonest analysis of the case, confusing witnesses and dates and times and a mountain of facts, and used that as the grounds to take back the reversal, saying, well, uh, we don't think you're innocent enough so you can go die in prison and you don't need evidence to prove that you did it. And their argument was actually that you don't need any physical evidence to send a, pr a person to prison to die. Now the reason this should shock everybody is the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals is a death penalty court. It oversees uh, states like Kentucky and Ohio, for example, which have the death penalty. So that court held that you can kill a person with absolutely no evidence of actual guilt or because they relate when they filed appeal, even if they're innocent. And that's one of the most shocking things about this case from the many, many things that shock people when they learn about it. All right. Let me just digest what you just said and repeat it. Okay. What you're saying is that they're saying that, yeah, you might be innocent, but you missed the time to apply? That's correct. They claim that I was late. I think their calculation was around 19 days. Mm -hmm. And they're also saying that, hey, we don't need evidence to put anyone in prison. We don't like you. We'll just screw you over. Right. No, no evidence. And when I say no evidence for the listeners, no witness, no weapon, no confession, no forensics, no science, no fingerprints, no suspect vehicle, no murder weapon, no plotting, planning, forethought. Nobody's saying I was going to go commit this crime or they helped me commit this crime or I told them I was going to kill this person. Nothing. And a mountain of evidence to the contrary. And not to mention the fact that I passed multiple polygraphs and my principal alibi witness, my son's mother, who I was with at the exact time of the murder up north, also passed multiple polygraphs, including with uh, Port Huron's own polygrapher. So not only do they not need evidence, even all the evidence pointing to my innocence was completely ignored. The numerous alibi witnesses, physical documentation, my car being broken down, which there was actual receipts, paperwork, and witnesses for, my being in a martial arts school where the students were logged in at a specific time, just two hours after the murder, 500 miles away, none of those things mattered to the court. And this is really about protecting Robert H. Cleland, the federal judge 
who at that time was a prosecutor who framed me for this murder. Mm -hmm. So this really wasn't about my innocence or guilt. They didn't care about the victim. This is about protecting one of their own. Isn't your case full of uh, a million uh, uh, Brady violations, starting with the fact that the lady who was with you was not even asked to testify? No, not only was she not called, she was uh, terrorized by the police. There's actually a police report where she went and complained because officers were threatening her. They were terrorizing her neighbors and threatening her neighbors. They were threatening to charge her neighbors with crimes, harassing them, saying things about Michelle that weren't true, and then told Michelle they were going to put her in prison, take our just-born child. They, uh, they took our dogs. We had two German Shepherd puppies. They were beautiful puppies, uh, very well cared for. They were spoiled rotten. They had every, every toy and little puppy bandanas and sunglasses and puppy vitamins. They took our dogs one day, no paperwork, no notice, and they, according to the police, they killed them the same day. When Michelle found out the dogs were missing, um, she was cleaning the apartment, and we had a, a big Mercury Marquis, a vehicle, so she put the dogs in the car while she cleaned the apartment so they wouldn't run around and get all over everything. And um, it was a nice day out. They'd only been in the vehicle for a little while. It wasn't hot or anything. When she came back to the car, the puppies were gone. When she went to the police, they said, oh, we took your dogs. And that was it for her. They told her, oh, we took your dogs and we killed your dogs. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a photo of her um, that I, I shared. I can post it to my Facebook if it's not there already, of Michelle holding the dogs on the day that they did this. These dogs were very, very healthy dogs. And that was it. That was, all, that was, that was enough for her. She was terrified and she fled. So she went and she hid at her mother's house in Burton. And uh, the police knew where she was. The prosecution knew where she was. And my lawyer knew where she was. They all lied and told me they had no idea where she was hiding. And they never called her to trial. When she found out that the trial had taken place and she hadn't been notified, she came forward, she contacted me at the jail, and she offered to testify, and I tried to get her into court to get some kind of testimony from her, and Judge Corden forbade it. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't even let her come into the courtroom. That's, this is all a matter of record, just so the listeners know. Everything that I'll, I'm going to say during this program is a matter of record, not my own conjecture. If something is my theory or my idea, I'll let you know, but otherwise it's all a matter of record. Yeah, I mean, I, I threw in the conjecture. I said a million Brady violations was obviously an exaggeration. But, <laughs> Pretty close. But even close. even one Brady violation, I mean, yeah. it, it should not uh, be ignored. Uh, you know, I wanted to know who is Temujin Kensu as a human being, and why is he still in prison if he didn't do this? You know, um, that's a wonderful question, and everybody asks me that. Uh, for many years, people would say, well, there must be some evidence. There must be some evidence. And I'd say, no, there's nothing. And they say, no, there must be something. And I think inmates do that a lot. And, but obviously, this case has been looked at by uh, literally hundreds of experts and organizations. Uh, millions of people around the world have looked at it and read the material. Uh, there have been hundreds of articles, uh, dozens of news programs, a documentary, countless podcasts. Um, it's been looked at front to back a million times. Um, there's literally no evidence that I had anything to do with this crime. This is about protecting the status quo. Um, we now know that the victim in this case, sadly, was using drugs and dealing drugs. This is a fact that was known to his family. We have uh, testimony from multiple dealers and criminals who engage these activities with Mr. Macklem, and I'm not uh, implying that he should have suffered any fate because of what he was doing. Um, but somebody wanted him taken out. They wanted him to stop doing what he was doing. The morning that he was killed, he was skipping his classes. It was about 20 below that day. Um, and he was killed at the college by somebody who knew all of his movements, knew everything about him. Now, I had never met this man, and I lived hundreds of miles away. I had obviously no reason to want to hurt him. But that aside, the reason that I'm still in here is because uh, 
1990 when my first appeal was being heard and I actually was granted some partial relief by the court and sent back for hearings. During that period, Robert Cleland was appointed by George Bush Sr. as a U.S. District Court judge. Now, that's a very powerful lifetime position. This is a man who now has the power to manipulate uh, billions of dollars in revenue through litigation. For example, he oversaw GM lawsuits and things like that. Um, he has the power to control politics. He has the power to determine what laws are active and inactive and effective and to be enforced and not be enforced. And then to send men away to die as a federal judge, he can execute people too. And um, he was a power-hungry maniac when he was the chief prosecutor for Port Huron, St. Clair County. He ran twice for the Michigan Attorney General's office. He lost massive defeats both times. Though the state rejected him, he ran again. Um, he ran the first time and lost the election the day before this murder. He then ran again four years later and used my case as part of his platform to show what an amazing, incredible human being he was, I guess. Our personal investigation into him showed that he's been a horrible human since he was a young man. He was despised by those who grew up with him, despised by those who knew him in Catholic school. His fellow workers can't stand him. The U.S. Marshals I met that know him have nothing good to say about him. And these are men that see him on a daily basis. And um, all of that aside, uh, he is a very powerful person, and he rose as much as he was able to rise with his limited abilities in the Republican Party. And he began to use his influence to have me harassed in prison, to have me transferred. Mm -hmm. uh, there are actual records in the MDOC about him trying to have me locked into a cell in Marquette and have the door welded shut. The guy was a maniac, simply a maniac. He lied to the MDOC. Uh, this was found out and, and um, determined to be so during a lengthy investigation by Arden Melberg, who worked with I&I and I in the Michigan State Police in 1987 and 88 when I was in Jackson. He, he, he was so obsessed with me that he couldn't stop even when I was in prison. Even though I was you know, being a good boy and staying out of trouble, um, he was trying to make my life hell in here. And it was all because of his ties to the Macklin family. Yeah, and because he knew that once you get out, he's done. His career is right. over. Exactly. So, uh, as I was saying, we were waiting for a decision from the court, and I had the second half of my hearing, and suddenly they wouldn't let me attend. So by law, you're allowed to attend your hearings unless you engage in some kind of misconduct. They didn't want me to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. Well, the second half of this hearing, that's when all the lying started. Then it was the, oh, we can't find the photographs, and we don't know who asked what, and we don't remember who did what. Now, I could have answered all those questions, but I wasn't allowed to attend. This was after Cleland became a federal judge. Isn't that against the law? Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely illegal. And there, there have been so many violations in this case. There's a simple law in Michigan that says that when you file an appeal and you present an issue, let's say 12 issues, then the court has to do a step-by-step -step analysis of each issue. What they've been doing in my case is simply saying the word no merit for everything. So we turn in a 250-page brief with affidavits and expert opinions and law enforcement and polygraphs, and they just say the word no merit and I spend five more years in prison each time they do that. So after Robert was appointed in 1990 by Bush, suddenly the Court of Appeals didn't care about my case anymore. And they wrote a lengthy analysis, which was garbage, and got every single fact wrong and every legal argument wrong. They ignored the mountain of evidence of my innocence. And that was the tone from 1990 until 2010, when Judge Hood was gracious enough to stand up and do the right thing and rule for me. Um, now, here's the, here's the thing people should know to show you how amazing this really is. Judge Hood is Robert Cleland's boss. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time in American history, as far as we know, that a federal judge has ruled against a fellow judge in their own court and literally said, you framed an innocent man for murder. 
you engaged in horrible misconduct, and she had to see this person walk the hallways every day. So to me, you know, Judge Hood is a hero. She's a national hero as far as I'm concerned. No doubt. And the Sixth Circuit was never going to let that stand. They were never going to let one of their own be accused of doing what he had absolutely done, what everyone agrees he did, what every expert agrees he did. Mm. And so they had to find any way to take it back. So I had a second partial relief on a habeas between 2015 and 2017 because of the photos they faked me with that Dr. Dysart talked about, who you referenced earlier. And once more, the court held my Brady rights were violated, my rights under Strickland versus Washington, my rights to have effective counsel, they were all violated. And they sent it to a judge named William Bertelsman, and my case was incredibly moved to northern Kentucky, mm -hmm. out of Michigan, again because of Robert Cleland, and sent to this old crony of his down in northern Kentucky. Damn. Bertelsman comes in out of retirement, writes this insane rambling opinion citing a case called Keith that has nothing to do with my case or the facts of my case, and basically takes back the reversal that would have been granted by the Sixth Circuit had they honored their own nine-page opinion and said my rights were you know, massively violated. Bertelsman sends it back to them, and they overturn themselves again, and here comes David W. McKeague, Robert Cleland's friend again, the judge that I had a falling out with in 96 in a civil suit, which I won, by the way. And um, he decides once more that, uh, oh, the illegal photos and the lying about them and hiding them for 24 years and changing them and giving fake photos to the jury and a fake photo board, none of that mattered. So now they've attacked my innocence and my timeliness, and now we have the photos proving the entire case predicated upon this phony lineup is now invalid. And they said once more, yeah, it doesn't matter. So that, again, they sentenced me to die. Had this been a death penalty state, I would have been executed, and uh, they could have cared less. And uh, so this is uh, this 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 should scare people because this is what happens when you're in the gears of the system, and they will protect their own, and they will they will destroy you, and they will lie about you, and they will make sure that nobody cares about you, and they will bury you away. And um, we see that happen all the time now. Yeah. And. Um, Fortunately, our attorney general was brave enough to open up a CIU, which gave her the authority to look into my case. Yeah, I, I don't know how brave enough they are because, uh, I mean, don't get me started. Well, our, our CIU is our CIU is new. Just just so you understand the timeline on that. Yeah. You no, know, I, I I understand that and I appreciate yeah. what they're doing, but it shouldn't be taking them so long to sit on it. These guys, they, they these guys are professional attorneys, man. They know how it's, it should be. They know the game, how it should be done. Yeah. It's like, I see it. It's wrong. Okay, get this guy out. You right. know, it should be like that. I don't know what they're waiting for, but the only thing I can think of is, of course, you know, they don't want to ruffle some feathers of a judge. Right. Yeah, you know. Right. So, so I, I don't have any respect for them. Well, just for, just for the listeners, uh, so they understand, Governor Granholm, well, now Energy Secretary Granholm, was Michigan's attorney general. And there was an investigation opened up by some agents in that office uh, under Robert Ayani and Mark Bloomer, solely because an attorney friend of mine, Jonathan Mayer, one of my supporters, happened to know some of these high-ranking people in the attorney general's office. And they gave us a meeting. They actually said, it's only because of your lawyer's reputation that we're giving you this meeting. And they assigned agents. Not because of the credentials of your document? No, no, they didn't care about my appeals. They, they knew that my lawyer, John Mayer, who'd come onto the case pro bono, uh -huh. as, as everybody who's ever worked in this case has done, um, they knew John, and they said, well, you know, we think you did it, but we know your lawyer, John. He's an amazing human being, so we're going to listen. Mm -hmm. And John made a presentation 
with uh, uh, my uh, my wife Amako Kansu, who passed away in 2012. Of course, you know I'm now with Paula, and um, they made a presentation to the AG's office and impressed them enough. They said, you know, we're going to assign some agents. So they assigned two agents to the case. They spent about six months on it, and guess what they concluded? That I was completely innocent. Mm -hmm. They came to see me at the Ken Ross Correctional Facility, and um, of course, 9/11 happened, and agents were being redirected to other tasks, and um, Suddenly, we were notified that our attorney general had shut down the investigation case, and they weren't to talk about it anymore. And, of course, uh, that woman went on to become Governor Granholm, who refused to grant my commutation in 2010 after the federal court held that I was completely innocent. Mm -hmm. uh, again, almost unheard of in Michigan. And um, then, of course, you know, Governor Snyder also refused to grant my commutation, and then the present Governor Whitmer while being appealed to by literally tens of thousands of people and members of the media and senators, all the way to U.S. Senator Carl Levin, who we just lost to cancer recently, she also refused to grant my commutation. So one of the, powers you, one of the problems you have when you're in my situation is the commutation process is created just for people like me where the appellate system has failed. Because obviously if the appellate system failed, I'd be home. If the parole system functioned, I'd be home. Mm -hmm. So the commutation process is there solely for when the other two processes fail. And literally tens of thousands of people implored her, including the very law firm she worked for prior to uh, going into politics, um, said, hey, you need to let this man go. This is a terrible travesty of justice. And uh, she rubber stamped a denial. And then two years later, she denied me again. Mm -hmm. Just just about uh, what six, eight months ago, she denied me again. She won't even discuss it. She won't talk about it. She won't talk to the press about it. She knows, she knows I didn't commit the crime. Her staff met with people that uh, support me on multiple occasions, and there were a lot of discussions and correspondence back and forth, and it was made very clear that she knows I didn't commit this crime. But she's granted no commutations, better yet to, you know, uh, my case is called Michigan Shame, mm -hmm. and she was, uh, she was asked to fix Michigan Shame, and um, she's not going to do it. So, yeah. I mean, doesn't it speak volumes about a, a justice system that doesn't need the merits of one's documents, but needs someone who knows someone so that they, they can talk about it? That's exactly right. Um, she did The only commutation she's done in Michigan, she won't do one for anybody who's innocent. The only commutation she did were for four drug users because some celebrities tweeted about them. Now, one of them happens to be a good friend of mine, and I absolutely agree that those guys had way too much time, and, and they should have been let go. So I'm not crying sour grapes about that. One of them, Miko, is actually a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. um, but she only let them go because Chelsea Handler and Snoop Dogg, the rapper, tweeted about these guys. Yeah. And that brought it to her attention. And then she just couldn't wait to get them out. So I, I guess if I guess the famous celebrities, well, no, John Cryer and some celebrities have tweeted for me. But I guess they weren't uh, important to her. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, Chelsea Handler and Snoop Dogg were, and suddenly she had to, you know, decry this terrible injustice and, you know, get them out of prison. And it, but meantime, she let 150 inmates die of COVID and didn't let a single one go, mm -hmm. even the ones that were doing very short time and were on ventilators. So, uh, you know, again, this isn't about compassion. This is about politics. And it's always about politics, sadly. Yeah. They should be yeah. voted out, thrown out of the office by the people once the people know. But the people are also morons. Yeah. And they get brainwashed really quickly, so they need yeah. to get off of this cognitive dissonance and see what their own rulers, what their own government is doing to them. Yeah. But you know, before my blood boils more and it goes <laughs> beyond a point of no return, I really want to know you. Yeah. I want to know who is Temujin Kensu, 
And I want to know how is Kemujun Kensu finds the courage to face this bullshit and yet stay sane. Well, that's uh, that's <laughs> that's hard. Let me tell you first off uh, how I've gotten by. Um, I think everybody in here in my situation becomes despondent, uh, self-destructive, suicidal, whatever you will. I but I always believed early on that uh, somebody was going to come forward. You know, the, the murderer is going to come forward. Somebody is going to tell the police who the real murderer was or whatever it might be. And, you know, we, we have some pretty strong indications about who those people are. But um, I, when I got to prison, what I did was, uh, you know, we didn't have the Internet. We had none of those mechanisms in those days. We didn't have cable television. Mm -hmm. So we had the daytime channels, and I would watch uh, Lisa Gibbons and Oprah and Geraldo, and I would write anybody that had a talk show and beg them, please tell my story. Because... Wrongful convictions were really hot, like in 88 and 89, for example. Mm -hmm. So I was writing all these shows, and I'd just get these little thank you cards. Oh, thank you for your show idea. We'll put it in our file. And then I'd see these wrongful conviction cases that were like nowhere near as bad as mine. And it would kind of anger me that nobody really even looked at the story. And so that frustration, uh, instead of turning into the self-destructive behavior that uh, you know, befalls so many in here and they turn to drugs and other things. I, I went in the other direction and became like a fighter. So it was fighting the corruption in the system, calling out abuses in prison. When I came to prison, it was insanely violent. Uh, the year that I came to prison, two corrections officers were killed. One of them was killed right in front of me in Five Block in Jackson, mm -hmm. um, an officer named Jack Budd. And um, so it was a very, very violent place. I watched inmates being murdered. I, you know, I made a lot of enemies. When you start helping people, you make enemies in the administration, mm. and they will turn that back to the prisoners and say, hey, get that guy. Mm. And then once you're fighting with inmates, it doesn't matter how the fight got started. Now you're fighting with them and all their friends or their gangs or their groups or their organizations. And uh, that can carry on in here for years. So between fighting the battles for survival and the administration gunning for me, um, I, I dedicated myself to learning as much as I could about the system, about why it's failing, and how to fix it. It, the internet was a godsend because when the internet finally started developing in the 90s, we had a chance to start posting things online and more people were able to see the story. But prior to that, I wrote thousands of letters. And the thing that always kept me going was the amazing people that would just come into my life. And if, if anybody out there is a person of faith, whatever you believe, I, I have to believe somebody's directing this. I have to believe there's a God. There's a, 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 there's a God in this. God, because of course, in my worst moments, when I wasn't the best person I could be, especially these amazing people would come into my life. So I, I use the example of my wife, who I lost to cancer. Uh, we uh, were together from uh, 1990 until she passed in 2012, um, sadly from a. Uh, uterine cancer, and um, after a very short, very fierce battle. But she fought for me. Uh, she was just a warrior, just an absolute warrior. And she brought other amazing people in. Sadly, I lost many of them along the way uh, due to sickness. I lost uh, one of my best friends to a uh, brain tumor and another to a heart attack, and another uh, died during surgery. And these were all people that just came into my life and said, this is terrible what happened to you. I'm going to help you fight. And so you're down and you lose an appeal and you think you're never going to see justice and then here come three or four more people. And it's just like you doing what you're doing right now. You had uh, things happen in your life that led you to this crusade that you're on now. And this is my crusade. So I absolutely do get um, 
I guess I guess despondent is still an appropriate word. You know, the governor uh, refusing to grant my commutation was a blow to everybody. I had I had little faith she was going to do it because she hadn't kept any of her campaign promises, and um, so I kept telling people she's not going to do this. She's not. Gonna. Amazing people are turning to her and she's just ignoring them. She's not even answering them. She's not going to do it. I'm like, oh no, she has to. She has to see. This is so terrible. And I was in the press constantly. And they would mention the fact that I had a commutation pending. And um, when she didn't grant the commutation, I started getting responses from hundreds of people like, that's it. We're going to make sure she doesn't get a second term. She's broken every promise, including the promises about criminal justice. She's done nothing for innocence. She knows what she's doing to you. She doesn't belong there. But the flip side is our attorney general. So again, I get... I get very down and obviously I'm sad that I um, you know wasn't granted justice by our governor but our attorney general to her credit has kept as far as I know just about every promise she made during her campaign and one of those promises was very early on she said I will look at this case and I was blown away because I was you know I was a nobody but I, I think she'd heard of my story and uh, people in the criminal justice circles in Michigan have obviously heard about this case and of course around the country and now around the world and um, she, she promised when she came into office right away, she said, I'm going to look at this case. So we didn't know how she was going to do that. Um, I didn't know if she was going to try and open her own investigation. But what she did was she created a conviction integrity unit, which we fought for years. My, uh, my wife who passed testified about the need for this in Michigan 20 years ago, and I was part of that uh, testimony. Beautiful. But our, again, Governor Granholm wouldn't do it. Governor Snyder wouldn't do it. Um, uh, Governor Engler wouldn't have even thought about it. And um, this attorney general did, and she didn't need anybody's permission. She went and she did it. And however she got a budget for it, she did it. And more importantly, just for everybody listening to understand, Dana Nessel was the, the first person besides Judge Hood at that level who had the courage to come out and, and take that step. And she put an amazing team together. Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a wonderful attorney on the on the case that knew uh, knew all about it and I really wanted her to be there unfortunately she had a conflict so our AG went out and she got some other amazing people who have incredible histories in Michigan uh, of being completely fearless not caring about Robert Cleely not caring about the corrupt court system not being afraid to do what's right and she put them on the case and they spent uh, two years tearing it apart and looking at everything and uh, I have not been allowed to see their report uh, I'm sure there will come a time when I can but they know that I'm innocent of this crime, and um, I have absolute faith that they're going to secure my release very soon. But that took 35 years, and, and literally hundreds of thousands of people, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and programs, and media, and politicians, and people who came and went and, and you know sacrificed. Many of them fought for me right up to the ends of their lives. Uh, when my wife was dying, she was working on her laptop, you know, in between bouts of slipping in and out of a coma. It's horrible. And then Paula came in my life and just literally dropped everything and took on this cause. And um, it, it shouldn't be like that, Imran. It should not take that much, and especially the case this bad. Because and what I want everybody to understand is, as grateful as I am, there are other people out there that are innocent. And they don't have the support I have. They don't have the network that I've been blessed to have. They don't have the legal ability I've developed to, to lay all these facts out and, and you know do all this writing things and um, they're just sitting there in the cell wasting away you know because of a lack of resources or a lack of uh, you know the ability to defend themselves so I've actually taken on some inmate cases around the country that I'm helping 
uh, fight for innocent people in other states now. Beautiful. And um, it really worries me that I do believe I'm on my way home now, but it worries me that it took me 35 years. I, had, I, I almost died here numerous times from multiple disorders and attempts on my life. And um, the people that are out there in those cells that are wasting away, that don't have that strength or don't have that support network, may well die when they don't belong in those cells, too. And I really I want to see a change. And I'm, sadly, I'm, I'm not seeing that change at all on a national level. So yeah. Michigan is, is actually reforming, though. Yeah, uh, let's see how much of that occurs. I uh, interviewed this attorney who won a case uh, of a gentleman called Michael Thompson, who spent, he was uh, in there, He's gonna, he was supposed to be in there for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, but after 25 years, uh, his attorneys were able to get him out. And I asked her when she got him exonerated, because exoneration is better than clemency, because you know sure. a lot of people Absolutely. suffer even, even when they come out because they're not right. exonerated. Even exonerated people uh, suffer. So right. because the government doesn't have a system to help those guys that they screwed over. Right. So I asked the attorney, how did it happen? And she said, Imran, it's like, you know, grains of sand going out of my hands because it took it it took Kimberly uh, 10 years to get Michael Thompson out right and I said how did it happen and she said that she when she spoke to the DA the DA said that there was there was there was too much pressure there was public support uh, there was too much public pressure and there was pressure from the governor's office and I asked her I said what about those people who can't read or write, let alone fight right. their cases. They have right. no money. They don't even have money to put money on the on the phone so they can call me. I mean, exactly. Wh- what, wh- what's going to happen to them? Well, too bad. Nothing's going to happen to them. They'll, they'll probably stay in there. So I, I, yeah. I, I, I uh, That's right. you know, I appreciate what you're doing for those guys in there. And, uh, you know, God works in mysterious ways. You mentioned your wife, Paula. I think yeah. God sent her to you as a mercy and she's oh, a absolutely. fighter. Yeah, she is a fighter. Yeah, she's been amazing. But, but just like Amico, uh, this is a woman who had no experience in this area. She she came into my life. Uh, I didn't uh, I didn't say, hey, get me out of prison. I told her what was going on with the case, and um, they had not formally established the CIU at that time. And I called Paula early in our relationship, um, and I had you know I had fallen head over heels in love with her, and <laughs> I told her that, and. Um, but I called one day and I was like, uh, what are you doing? She says, I'm, I'm fixing your Facebook page. It's terrible. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Because I only got the Facebook up to get information of, about the case about out. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't running it myself, um, people were just posting all kinds of stuff on there. So mm-hmm. there were rock bands and all sorts of things on my site. And, um, and then uh, I think I called her two days later and asked what she was doing. And she said, uh, I'm getting you out of there. And I'm like, what? She said, I'm getting you out of there. And that was it. She just decided she was bringing me home. And she literally said, I'm bringing you home to me. And um, next thing you know, she was getting a hold of innocence groups. And suddenly it was more media interviews and podcasts in six months than I'd had in 10 years. And I, I couldn't believe it. And she was just every day, it was more and more and more and reaching out to more people. But that led to her joining all these groups and organizations and fighting for them. And now she's already been to like seven rallies here in Michigan. She's helped organize the last three major rallies we've had in this state. Mm-hmm. And now in just two years, she went from, you know, mild-mannered person working for a bank and going to bed at 7 o'clock at night in her little farmhouse to this champion for justice who's fighting for innocent people and, you know, uh, juvenile lifers and women in prison. We've got an innocent female friend down south we've been helping, too, 
who we're convinced is innocent. And now she's working with these groups and organizations and talking to people like you and, and building something that, that we hope is going to help a lot of people. So anybody can do this. And this is no slight to Paula, but anybody can do this. Uh, anybody can be a fighter. They can be a champion. You don't need to spend a bunch of money. You don't need a bunch of resources. You really just need the willpower. Yeah. And obviously you found that will, uh, the will to stand against some pretty oppressive forces that didn't want you telling the truth about things. And if more of us do that, eventually we outnumber and we can outnumber the forces that would have us, you know, be quiet and go back in a corner and die. And I hope people will take some hope from this and the fact that I got through this nightmare. But you know what? A lot of people didn't. And a lot of my friends took their lives in here, including some that I believe were innocent. And a lot of people around this nation are suffering. Some are in prisons that are worse than the prison I'm in now. Some are in countries that are much, much worse than the country I live in and the prison that I'm in. So uh, I really want to help them, too. And the first thing I want to see in the U.S. I'd love to see is some kind of an, a national federal agreement on innocence. And now what our attorney general did, which is novel, is we had a um, Detroit, which is Wayne County, had a innocence unit. But it wasn't enough because we have so many other counties in Michigan and we were just cranking out. You know, Michigan leads the nation in wrongful convictions, just so everyone knows. Mm-hmm. That's how bad things are here. And um, we were just locking up innocent people and throwing away the key and rubber stamping appeals for 40 years in this state. It's insane. Well, 50 years, actually. Uh, We had uh, the lowest reversal rate in the nation on appeals. We were right around the same as Tennessee, but Tennessee gives special consideration to death penalty cases. Mm -hmm. And um, so basically, uh, unless you were insanely wealthy in Michigan, you were not getting your appeal heard. You were not getting any justice in our court system. Uh, Credibly, my lawyer from the University of Michigan is now the chief justice of Michigan's Supreme Court. And obviously, she's a fearless fighter, so that's really changed things. But what Dana did was Dana said, our attorney general said, we need a CIU for the state because of all these counties that won't do this. So she took the lead on her own and created a state CIU, which now covers every county. And guess what's happened since then? Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, which is Washtenaw County, now they have an innocence unit. Yeah, Alquin County now has an innocence unit. Uh, Macomb County's opening an innocence unit. So our biggest counties where a lot of these violations, the majority of these violations were taking place, these rushes to convict are now opening innocence units, and these amazing prosecutors are saying, my job is not just to lock people up. My job is to make sure the wrong person doesn't get locked up, and if they did, to get them out. So, you know, God bless them. God, and God bless uh, Dana Nessel for, like I said, keeping her promises. And uh, I hope she stays in office, and I hope she runs for more. But uh, Imran, I think everybody knows we don't have enough of that. We don't have enough of that. That's she, she's one in a, a thousand, unfortunately. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Did you say me? Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. I'm holding I'm holding What'd you say? Fuck you, man. Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Tadiki, and today we're speaking with Temujin Kensu, who is fighting from inside the prison in Michigan against what he calls his wrongful conviction in 1987 for the murder of Scott Macklem. Kensu has spent 35 years behind bars now, and they say he has no chance of parole, but they can say whatever they want because the facts, in the end, the truth will find its way. I'm going to quote you. You once said, 
There's not one single shred of evidence that I had anything to do with this crime. Correct. So what I want to do right now, just for a couple of minutes, you know, I want you to go back to that day in 1987. And I want you to tell us okay. where were you, what happened? Because one of the biggest thing that's missing in terms of data is your account of actually what occurred that day. So we would really yeah. appreciate if you could take us back in time and tell us what okay. happened. Yeah. So um, we put out these really detailed fact sheets, which were prepared, some of them as early as uh, 1986 when I was arrested, uh, my exact whereabouts the day of the crime. Um, what I want the listeners to remember, of course, because many of them are younger, is, of course, in my day, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have cell phones, uh, except for the phones you saw in cars, which were $10,000 and $10 a minute for a phone call. Nobody had a little mobile cell phone in 1985, 1986. So... I lived in the Upper Peninsula. I had lived down in the um, Jeddo area, which is uh, about a half hour from Port Huron. I had met this girl, Crystal Merrill, um, who we know knows a lot about the murder, uh, if she's not the actual murderer. And um, I dated her for a short while. She was completely insane. She was uh, the, the stocky, obsessed type. And in a couple of days, she was talking about marriage and moving in together. And I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, I was young, I was, you know, singing in bands and riding my motorcycle and being Johnny Cool Guy in the 80s, and uh, I was not looking to settle down with this crazy woman. And uh, she started stalking me, coming to my cabin, constantly demanding to see me in early morning hours. Of course, I wasn't much for getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning back when I was 22, 23 years old. Hmm. And I terminated my relationship with her. Uh, I had a friend of mine, Tom Ford, live with me at that time, and my son's mother, Michelle Woodworth, and we had both agreed that this woman, Crystal Merrill, was completely insane, and uh, that she was going to be a problem. And we had talked about moving up north, so we decided to move up north. We went up to um, Escanaba, and we got a place up there, and I never saw Crystal again. So I, I, I met her the last week of May of 1986. I only saw her a couple of times. And I dumped her in June after she came uninvited to a party that a neighbor had looking for me. And it was a private party. He didn't want anybody there. It wasn't supposed to be there. She barged her way into the property. He became very irate, justifiably so. I apologized. I went out and said, what are you doing here? And she started making all kinds of crazy accusations and demanding to see me. And I had to spend time with her and I needed her and all this crazy stuff. And I said, okay, that's it. We're done. No more. Go away. Don't come around anymore. Now, here's the thing. She admits this. She admits that I did this, and I said, it's no skin off my back if I ever see you again while she was laying all these threats on me. Uh, so hardly the stalking boyfriend. Uh, went to her house one time to visit. Her mother said I was an absolute gentleman and that she was very, very affectionate towards me and that she had never said a negative word about me, not one. I never called and spoke to her on the phone at her home until the night of my arrest. So obviously I'm not going to her home. I'm not following her around. I'm not chasing her down anywhere. She's not seeing me anywhere unless she comes to my house, my cabin. And um, so like I said, again, obviously not the stalking, the stalking boyfriend type. In fact, uh, in the short period I saw her, I took off for two weeks and didn't even call her once. I went up to Flint with Tom. And um, there's a timeline for that because Tom's father got married. So we can prove when um, uh, William Ford and uh, his wife Debbie were married. And um, You never threatened her about anything? Uh, I, didn't even, I didn't even call her, so I, I had no interest in her whatsoever. Um, then when I came back, she was looking for me again. Michelle uh, made a very detailed statement as to Deanna Bomar that Crystal was harassing me, stalking me, that I was hiding from her in the cabin, that I didn't want to see her. So again, I just want everybody to understand, whatever she or they say now, this is actually a matter of record. 
the stuff they're saying is not. What I'm telling you is. And there's affidavits from witnesses who saw me like, like trying to hide from this girl. So we moved up north. We never came back down. I never saw her again. She admitted she never saw me again. So uh, her boyfriend is killed uh, in November, November the 5th of 1986. And if we have, there's, a, there's a series of police reports. She does not blame me for the crime. Now, this is very important for everybody to understand. If she thought that I did this, the first thing she would have said was, oh, my God, I know who killed Scott, and would have told the police it was me. She didn't do that. She said Scott had no enemies and nobody would want to hurt him. Not, oh, my God, there's a ninja and all the other things they called me trying to hunt Scott down. Because I'd never met this guy. I didn't know about this guy, except for one time she mentioned him in passing among a series of other boyfriends. And um, bear in mind, I'm living up north, 500 miles away. I'm not coming down. I have no contact with her. So now the reason this matters is, again, this is, there's no cell phones. There's no Internet. I'm living 500 miles away in a farmhouse way out in the woods in Rock, Michigan, about 20 miles south of Marquette. I have no contact with anybody downstate in this area and obviously no contact with Crystal. She was not seeing the Scott guy when she seen me. So obviously I wasn't jealous and there was no issue. I never had to compete with her or any of her boyfriends. She was very promiscuous. Uh, but I never had any problems with those guys. I never had any run-ins with those guys. Did you know the victim? Because again, I saw... No, absolutely not. Never even met him. And passed this on my polygraph too. Never even met the guy. Never even saw a photograph of him. Just so the listeners know, and this is also a matter of record because they didn't use any photos during the trial, I never saw a photo of Scott Macklin until a year after I was convicted of his murder. Not one picture. Mm -hmm. I told the polygrapher that when he came to see me with the guys from ABC, and uh, he was blown away. He was absolutely blown away. And I said, no, I never saw a photo until they went out and got me a photo. The people got me a photo from a newspaper of the guy from when he had died. So I'd never even seen his face. I, I didn't even know what he looked like. The whole trial, I never saw one picture of him. And, uh, but bear in mind, I was isolated in the back of a jail in maximum security. My lawyer was a crackhead and a drunk who was working for the prosecution as a former prosecutor himself. And uh, so he gave me nothing. So there's no way I could have known anything about this Macklin guy. All right, so Scott is being harassed in his workplace by multiple individuals. There's police reports about this. This is prior to his death. On multiple dates, two men came into the store, and the reports say Scott knew these men, not me. He never, never mentioned me to anybody, and he didn't know me, never mentioned me to his family either, according to his parents' statement when he died. So the, but these two guys came in, he knew. It says the first time he had an altercation with them, and he challenged them to a fight. But the second time they came in the store, it says he was scared of them, and he hid in the back of the store. He didn't want them to even see him. Whatever these guys did, it scared Scott so much. The second time they came looking for him, he was hiding. Now, bear in mind, I don't know Who's Scott. these guys? Do we know these guys? We, no, we don't know who they are because the police didn't even try to find them. Once they found out it wasn't me, they dropped it. it was, the whole thing was disgusting, Imran. They did this constantly. Every time something didn't point to me, they would just let it go. Hmm. So you've got two violent incidents right before this man is killed, and they've made no attempt to find out who these two people were. And, of course, I'm living far away. So we know Scott's got these problems. Then we're, then we were told that somebody chased him in his car on November the 1st. Well, November the 1st, I'm at a wedding on video in front of 200 witnesses. So that's not me, obviously, but more importantly, going back to the no internet, no cell phones. There's no way I could have known anything about this guy. I, I had, I lived in a home with no phone. We didn't get a phone till, um, about a week before my arrest. We finally got a telephone installed. Well, I have no phone. I don't know this guy. This guy was killed at a college where he was skipping class in the early morning. That means the killer knew he went to college, knew where he was, knew that he wasn't in class. It was 20 below. The person couldn't have been waiting very long, knew where Scott would be, 
we know he was at the college skipping class because he was probably selling drugs there. That's the only reason he went. His grades were declining. He was skipping his classes, but he was driving from Croswell all the way to Port Huron to hang out at this college. He's killed by somebody who knows his vehicle and knows him on sight right away. There's no way I could have known any of this. There's no way I could have known this man was even going to college. There's no way I could have known he worked in some men's clothing store. Crystal didn't claim that I had any of this knowledge. Nobody ever saw me again. And Tom Ford and Michelle Woodward testified, we never left the Upper Peninsula. We never came back down. I never chased this guy, stalked this guy, or even mentioned Crystal again. Hmm. So whoever killed Scott had intimate information about him. Everything about him. They knew where he lived because he was supposedly chased in Croswell. They knew where he worked. They knew where he went to school. They knew what he drove, what he looked like, and where he was going to be that freezing cold morning in a blizzard in sub-zero temperatures. So obviously... And where were you at that time? The entire time I was in the Upper Peninsula, 500 miles away. And I was in Rock, I was in Rock Michigan. And at that particular time, you were in bed with your former yeah. wife. Yep, exactly. Uh, we have two German Shepherd puppies that would sleep with us, and they had to use the bathroom, and they got up. And um, we went outside, and they, they did their little business, and Shelly made me breakfast. And we had planned on going into town that day to stop by and see Melvin Carlson, my landlord. And to I had a, I ordered some martial arts equipment, and I was going to Treasure, treasure Chest Store to check on picking that up. And so we went into town, and by 11 o'clock, we were at the Taekwondo school where Master John Manali saw me, along with his student, Kathy Dyer, who was teaching that, that specific class that day. And uh, Mark Sherman, had, uh, who was at the class that day, had a PTA meeting, so he knew exactly what day it was. And there was another gentleman there um, that was kicking the bag with boots on, which the master never allowed. So we were actually discussing that. And um, the point was that multiple people saw me in the school. Hmm. When we left the school, three kids who were skipping school, who are still my supporters, um, Paul DeMars Dash Deal, who I just spoke to recently again, and Amy Creighton, um, all saw me on the walk. Uh, they, they knew when they were there because they were skipping class from Delta County High School. We went down to um, a real estate office where the woman remembered us coming in and wrote my name and the time, noon, on her blotter on her desk. And uh, my car was broken down that day in the Kmart's parking lot in Escanaba. Uh, two witnesses. Um, Patrick Kennedy and Gene Lundquist testified that I was there, that I asked them not to tow my car, that I pointed it out to them, and there's a signed, dated, stamped receipt with my name, my address, and the actual time on it from Kmart's for auto parts that I bought the day of the murder for my broken down car that was in their parking lot. And lastly, I went across the street to the auto parts store to buy a fuel pump at uh, Burkhold's Auto, M- I'm sorry, M&B Auto. And Mike Burkholz testified that I came in and bought a fuel pump for the vehicle that day. So that's just part of my alibi. Yeah. I was on a date with a woman named Bethany Steyer until about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning. So this is just five hours before the murder, again, up in the Upper Peninsula with my car, which had broken down that time and uh, wouldn't charge. So I had to get the battery cables from a gas station next door. Yeah. The manager of the big boys saw me there. Um, his name was Jeff McNamara. His nickname was Scruffy. Uh, he testified that I came in. He knew exactly when I was there because he gave me three cups of cream of broccoli soup, which they only serve Tuesday night. It's now early Wednesday morning. Mm. And uh, Beth Steyer, who was just interviewed recently, including by the CIU, confirmed 
that I wasn't making any attempt to leave. I wasn't trying to get out of there. In fact, I was trying to play kissy face with her in the car at 2 o'clock in the morning in freezing temperatures while we were charging the battery. So if I'm going to go down state and I have to rush down there and kill this guy in a couple of hours, I'm obviously going to want to get out of town. Yeah. And um, everybody confirmed that I was just as casual as can be, and I wasn't looking to leave, and I didn't leave. And there's even a phone call. As I say, about a week before we had a phone installed, there's a phone call on my phone card from the Flapjack Shack in Escanaba next to the Kmarts where my car broke down. So this is just some of the evidence we have proven that I was up north. Um, mm. and th this doesn't mention all the witnesses they didn't call. I saw uh, Cheryl Reinhardt, who's still a friend of mine to this day. They didn't call her. Um, and she knew exactly what day it was because she had a receipt for a dress she delivered that day. It was the only day her mom ever let her use the car. So she knew it was the 5th. Uh, she was with a woman named Gina Dubord. Um, there were numerous other people they didn't call. Um, so Because yeah. it would go against their case. Right, exactly. So uh, and, and here's the thing. Here's the really messed up thing. The only reason any of my witnesses were called or that I had any of this evidence was not because my lawyer did his job. It's because my son's mother, Michelle, went out and got a hold of everybody and said, Hey, do you remember seeing us? Mm -hmm. What do you remember? Do you have any proof? And so... With the kids in the walk, yeah, there's a school record showing they skipped class. And with the Taekwondo school, yeah, there's a sign-in log showing that Kathy Dyer taught the class that day and so on. So it was Shelly doing all the work. And that's part of why the police began to terrorize her and try to drive her away. Yeah. And, of course, sadly, when she fled, then I lost my only lifeline, and I was on my own from that point. So according to the documents, no physical or DNA evidence tied you to the crime scene. No. Nope. circumstantial evidence. No. Nope. And... And the conviction was based solely on the testimony of your former girlfriend and, and these jailhouse snitches. Right. So there were three, uh, three pieces of what you would call direct evidence. Now, remember, Crystal claimed uh, to, know, to have no knowledge of the crime. Her first three or four interviews, she didn't say a word about me or Scott. It was all just silly stuff like he drives a motorcycle and wears a leather jacket or he's a martial arts guy. He's a ninja. Just crazy stuff. Nothing about her boyfriend, obviously. Um, she doesn't. She doesn't. She didn't start building that story till like months later, and and obviously by that time I know she's covering something up because she's making up these insane allegations. And she suddenly got us having all this contact, which Michelle will tell you to this day, who lived with me, and Tom will tell you who lived with me, I, that I did not have with her. I hardly ever saw this woman. Now she starts telling story after story, and I'm telling the police, when is all this supposed to have happened? She told you guys we dated three times. She's just giving you like 40 different incidents. Some of these would take hours and hours. It didn't matter. She would lie and they would just, they would brush it off. She would blame me for things that, you know, they, they would find out later on her lies. She'd say she saw me at a party and then it turned out I was at a Halloween party up north and she'd change her story about that. She would just keep on lying. And we knew it's because she was using drugs with Scott and covering up the cause of his death. But the three pieces of evidence, if you want to call it that, were uh, Crystal, who claims no knowledge of any elements of the crime whatsoever, so not really a witness, just there to attack my character. Rennie Gobain, the witness from the parking lot, which I'll explain in one second, and the inmate informant, uh, Philip Joplin, who made this entire story up and admitted he made it up and that he was coached into doing so later on. Yeah. Now, just so the witnesses know, while he claimed I was confessing to him, there was another person sitting there. That person's name is Booker Brown. He's also one of my defenders to this day, and he's Philip Joplin's cousin. And he came out right at my trial and said, that's a lie. This guy kept saying he was innocent, saying he didn't do it, and he could prove he was up north. So Joplin's own cousin testified for me. This man didn't know me from Adam. I had never met this person. And he came in and testified for me at my trial. But fortunately, he was honest, and we interviewed him. 
And he said, no, no, that guy kept saying he didn't do it. He kept saying he was innocent. Phil kept trying to get information out of him because it was a setup. And Phil admitted it was a setup, too. So the only direct witness is Rennie Gobain. So um, if it's okay, I'll explain what happened. But he saw no one. But he saw nobody. Yeah, he, he's, he saw nothing. That's the, that's the other thing, too. So this is what Rennie Gobain did. The day of the murder, there was a, there was a bang, and people heard a scream. We don't know who screamed, but we think it wasn't Scott because the damage to his diaphragm, lungs, and heart implied that he probably couldn't have been the one who screamed. But witnesses heard a high-pitched scream. Now, here's the kicker for everybody. So that, that means there was a woman there while he was being shot. And there was a woman right by him when he was shot, yes. Uh, three witnesses saw a woman get into a car right next to Scott, shrug her shoulders, and drive away after a 12-gauge shotgun blast goes off right next to her. And to this day, the police have not even tried to find out who this woman is. And they didn't look for her back then either. And we think that was probably Crystal. Mm -hmm. But even if it wasn't, there was a shot. Now, here's the thing. Witnesses saw Scott supposedly running from the student center to his car. Now, Robert Cleland lied to the jury. He tried to hide all that. He tried to tell the jury I was sitting in the car next to Scott and that I supposedly shot him from this mystery vehicle. Scott's wound was too low, and it was moving at an upward angle, and the pellets were exiting under his armpit, and I think he was about six foot one, six foot two, so a little taller than me. The gun would have had to have been held very, very low by somebody, not out of a car door. Now, remember, it's again, it's sub-zero temperatures. It was 20 below that morning with a very cold wind and that dry snow blowing. I don't think anybody was sitting in the car waiting for him, and nobody saw a car pull out. So Cleland just made this, this entire silly story up. And the other reason it matters is because witnesses saw Scott running to his car. So he wasn't shot by somebody waiting for him at his car. He was running from somebody that was chasing him. It all happened. So something happened inside the student center. Exactly. And then he ran for his life, and that person pursued him. Exactly. And Robert Cleland, just like he lied about the airplane, had to try and put me next to Scott. Ooh. So he ignored his own witnesses saying Scott was running and appeared to be ducking. He was shot by the front wheel well of his car. His, his gym bag was laying on the hood, and he was just getting his keys in the door when he was shot. He was trying to get away from somebody. Mm. He wasn't shot by somebody sitting in a car next to him. And Robert Cleland knew that. These are his witnesses saying he was running from the student center to his vehicle, not shot by somebody waiting for him while he casually got into his car. Robert Cleland lied about everything to the jury, and my lawyer sat there you know, stoned and did nothing about this. So Scott is shot. So there are three people walking, uh, Bob Mervich, Kathy Ballard, and Rennie Gobain. Now, Bob Mervich testified for me. Kathy Ballard was supposed to be a witness, but she didn't pick me out, and she's one of my defenders now. So the third person there is Rennie Gobain. This is what Rennie Gobain did. He wanted to be a star. He went to the police on his own, and he said, oh, that thing in the parking lot, yeah, I think I have some information. And his original story, and we have the reports for anybody that wants to see them, or I think they're posted online now, is he saw, ready for this, a Datsun 280Z or a Mazda RX-7, gold in color. Very specific little sports cars with long fronts, mm -hmm. tiny little back seat, little short trunk in the back. Like little, like little Corvettes, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, he's a college student who's in a small auto body class, I think for his second year. So he definitely knows vehicle bodies very, very well. And he says he saw uh, uh, in that car this person driving by, and they had a hat pulled down to their eyes and a coat collar pulled up to their chin, and they're hiding behind their hand behind the steering wheel. So basically he saw absolutely nothing because we reproduced that. Nothing you could see whatsoever from the description that he gave. Mm -hmm. On top of that, so the person's hair was sticking out from under his hat, 
Well, I had a punk rock shag cut. This is the 80s now. And my hair was so short, it was like a fan on top of my head. So there was no hair sticking out under her hat, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, so this, this is all he said. And it says, it's the report says, no further information available. That's it. That's all he had. Well, then he goes and he gets hypnotized. Mm-hmm. And when he gets hypnotized, he changes everything. Now it's 12 license plate numbers. And he changes the car from that gold Mazda RX-7 or Datsun 280Z to a 1986 Burgundy Ford five-door station wagon. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an absolute fact. This is the record in this case. This man is a pathological liar. The reason that car matters, I was arrested on November the 13th in a donut shop in Troy, Michigan. Um, I don't know the time. I want to say around 7 or 8 o'clock at night, maybe a little bit later than that. And um, the next morning, I've been in jail now since the night prior. The next morning, an anonymous caller calls the Mount Clemens State Police Post and says, Hey, I just saw that guy you're looking for, and he's in a 1986 Ford Escort station wagon, burgundy in color. It was Rennie Gobain trying to plant me in the murder vehicle that he created himself. Yeah. Now, again, for anybody listening, this is all a matter of record. He literally tried to plant me in the murder vehicle that he made up himself after his hypnosis, not knowing when he said he saw me that I'd been in jail for about 16 hours at that time at least. Wow. Yeah. Right there, he's a liar, yeah. man. And so the, the state, Michigan State Police Trooper from that post testified for me. Thomas Ackley, his nickname was Bear Ackley, testified for me about this anonymous caller. But the caller also said he knew the victim, that he went to St. Clair County Community College, and he stupidly said he knew all about small cars because he was in this auto body class. It was Rennie Gobain trying to frame me. Mm. Now, the other reason this matters is Rennie Gobain said he was so moved by this that when he got to the class, he wrote down the plate number. Well, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. Bob Mervich testified Rennie Gobain never looked at anything, never looked at any car, never commented on it, didn't say a word in class, and didn't write anything down in a notebook. Rennie Gobain was just this nobody who wanted to be a star. Now, here's the scary part. Guess what else he wanted to be? A cop. Mm-hmm. And he became one. Oh, on a recommendation from the St. Clair County Prosecutor's Office and Robert Cleland, because of his help in this difficult prosecution, he went on to become a crooked cop in Oak Park, Michigan. Uh, God only knows how many people he screwed over after that. Oh, I, I'm, I wish the lawyers out there that dealt with this guy in any case would come, would come to us and say, hey, I need all the info on this guy, this sleazebag, who, by the way, lied about the hypnosis. He set the whole thing up himself, one of his own professors from the college. He was making up plate numbers. And um, so, so everyone understands, here's the case. This is the entirety of the case. Crystal attacking my character, claiming no knowledge of any element of the crime. Rennie Gobain making the story up, changing cars, changing plate numbers. Now he's changed the description of the driver. Now it's, oh, he's got a big nose. After he saw me, by the way, I have a, I have a slightly big nose. And, um, you know, uh, piercing eyes. I don't think I have piercing eyes, but apparently, you know, every criminal has piercing eyes now. And um, the vehicle change, the massive vehicle change. And then the vehicle he tried to plant me in the next day, not knowing I was in jail. And um, Philip Joplin, the inmate snitch, who not only admitted that he lied, there was a secret deal made with Philip Joplin. Now, my judge turned to the jury and said, I want the jury to know there was no deal made, no enticements. It was my judge that made the secret deal. We have the actual documents with my judge's signature and notes about my judge on them saying Judge Corden wants this done right away. Very strong recommendation from Judge Corden. Mm. So Joplin had like 14 or 15 felonies. 
um, was allowed to come in and go, oh, I've turned over a new leaf. He had just been arrested on escape status from a correction center in a stolen vehicle full of stolen stuff. Now he's turned over a new leaf. Um, the whole thing was a setup. They planted him in a cell with me. I was isolated. I wasn't allowed to be around others. Now one day they plant me in a cell with these two guys. I thought it was like they could attack me or something. I thought that was the original plan. Mm. Because the police had been assaulting and abusing the crap out of me while I was in jail, trying to break me down. Mm. And so I was on my guard right away. And uh, I became very defensive when this guy starts asking questions. So I knew it was a setup. And I said, listen, what are you, working for the police? Why are you asking questions? Who are you? Oh, no, I, I saw you in the news. I think you're innocent. I'm like, well, I am innocent. And that was all I really said to the guy. And um, as I said, his cousin is uh, his cousin still one of my defenders. And um, so so everyone understands that's that's the entirety of the case. They came and they got me. And they charged me with murder. And just so everyone knows, because I don't think this has ever happened before. I was never questioned that I was literally never questioned. So it, when you see the police sit down, and they ask you your side of the story. Nope. Mm. Never questioned. I actually demanded they question me. I have the police report about it, and they refused to do it. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't want a recording of me telling my side of the story, which the jury might see later on, the media might find out about. So what they did was they took me and put me in maximum security in this jail, cut me off from all human contact, shut off my phone, wouldn't let me bathe, forced me to grow my hair, forced me to grow a beard because their suspect had a beard, which I didn't, and, and literally set me up for this murder and refused to even talk to me about it. Does, does that the usual two detectives sit down and say, hey, what's your story? Crystal said this, or did you kill this guy? No, never. When I tell people this, they, they always find it hard to believe, and they'll, they'll go back and, uh, of course, U of M will confirm to you that I, I was never interviewed. They groomed you before the photo lineup. Oh, yeah. John Bones decided early on I was going to be the patsy. We know that he went to Robert Cleland and said, we've got a guy. We've got a fall guy. He became obsessed with me when Crystal's sister mentioned, well, Crystal used to date this guy with a motorcycle who's a martial arts guy, and he, and he sings heavy metal. And Bounds right away said, oh, tell me all about him. And that was all it took. Mm -hmm. In a year, they did no investigation into Scott whatsoever. We don't even know where he was the night before he was killed. We don't know where he was that morning. We don't know why he was at the college. They didn't talk to any of his fellow students. They didn't talk to anybody. The only people that spoke in this case were the ones that we went out and found with our limited resources or, you know, Shelly making phone calls or people suggesting things. The police did no investigation whatsoever and, and none into Scott. None. You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net. Did you say me? We don't want to scare you, but I'm holding you until the This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui, and today we're speaking with Temujin Kensu, who's fighting from inside the prison in Michigan against what he calls his wrongful conviction in 1987 for the murder of Scott Macklem. Kensu has spent 35 years behind bars now, and they say he has no chance of parole, but they can say whatever they want, because the facts, in the end, the truth will find its way. Crystal and Renee know each other? 
Well, here's the thing. Uh, we don't know if they knew each other beforehand, but we do know they were actually dating by the time of the trial. Mm. And that they had, you know, it's a true story. This is a matter of, a matter of uh, fact again. She's now married to an attorney down in um, Sanilac County in uh, Croswell, Michigan. Um, and she's, uh, she's Crystal Partaka now. Uh, we found her uh, previous husband who told us that she was a maniac and a drug fiend and a nut job. And he told us if, if she finds I'm saying bad about her, I'll never see my kid again. And um, later on, she married a, uh, a local attorney named Chad Partaka. Yeah, she's trying to protect clown. herself. Marry an attorney so oh, you yeah. can protect yourself. <laughs> yeah, she's a she's a, a complete loser. She's been sued for running sham businesses. She's a snake. Uh, the chief of police from San Lake County, who just passed away from a, a blood-based cancer recently, called her a scumbag in court and a pathological liar. Man. And um, this is the same guy was, that was defending her during my trial, later sued her for screwing him over on some business deals and went into court and said, oh, I know her. I know her history. She's a pathological liar. She's a monster. She's a horrible human being. So, um, yeah, she's – and now, just so everyone knows, I have offered cash rewards, uh, which we have the money for. Uh, I have challenged her on multiple occasions. Just take a simple polygraph, and I'll pay $10,000 to any charity of her choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won't do it. She will, she will not give an interview. She will not talk. Nobody in this case will talk, and I mean nobody. The victim's family won't speak. All they'll do is say he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what their initial police report says? They have no idea who I am. They'd never heard of me, and their son never mentioned me. Yeah. Now they run around telling people that I was threatening their son for six months, and I came to their house with a shotgun. They make up the most insane stories. And people who know them, including friends who want nothing more to do with them, have now come to our side and tell us about the Macklin family and what they say and what they do. Mm-hmm. And I have members of his family that are my defenders. So uh, that's pretty amazing. So, who do you think is blocking your release and why, after all this evidence? Well, there's no question that Cleland uses power for a long time. Uh, I don't know uh, what the governor's motivation was. As I mentioned, uh, Senator Carl Levin, who's a legend in the Michigan Senate and in the U.S. Senate, um, and, and the Levin family, who are just amazing people, by the way. Um, uh, Andy Levin uh, just helped get um, Fenster out, who was, you know, imprisoned overseas. The journalist, mm-hmm. um, and he, Andy, Andy, and the ambassador worked, uh, you know, tirelessly on that. These are people that have been fighting for justice for a long time for people in Michigan. Levin family is amazing. Senator Levin spent uh, the last moments of his life um, worrying about me, uh, calling the governor's office, pleading with her to let me go, sending letters, sending emails, meeting with her staff, and. This is a man who's done so much for Michigan, man. and she just snubbed him, and it was, it was shameful. The media just excoriated her for it. There were a dozen articles that came out blasting her about this, but it has to be uh, something really powerful that she's going to ignore someone like, like Carl Levin. Mm-hmm. This, this man, like I say, he's a giant in, in the Senate, and he came from that time when everybody got along. He was friends with Joe Biden. He was friends with everybody, and um, you know, he was a very pi- bipartisan guy. He could work and talk with anyone. And uh, Nolan Finley from the Detroit News, which is one of the conservative papers that also defends me, knew Senator Levin. And he said the same thing. This is shameful. This man was dying of cancer and fighting to secure my release. And our governor, she wouldn't even talk about it. So, you know, we don't know who all is doing this or what they have on her or for her that would make her, you know, do such a heinous thing. We don't know how much power Robert Cleland really has over this entire thing. Obviously, uh, it was mostly conservative judges for years denying me, and he's a conservative Republican, so in that sense, we can guess where that came from. The Macklems have money. We know they've probably thrown a bunch of that around, too. Um, 
Gary Macklin has, has dropped hints on everything from making sure I die in prison to having me killed. I, I don't know why he thinks that stuff's not going to filter back to me because it does. And um, there are a lot of people in that community that don't like the Macklems. They know that they lie about this case all the time. A woman wrote us once to say every time Pat opens her mouth, she lies about the case and she adds more to the story. So, uh, like I said, her initial statement was she had no idea who I was and Scott had never mentioned me. She's gotten the point now where if my name comes up, she just starts telling crazy stories about me as if they're true. So um, the, the, the thing is, I understand a family being tragic, you know, tragically upset about the loss of their son. Obviously, if my child was killed, I would be the same. But the Macklems know I didn't kill their son. What they're really concerned about is their image. And for them, this entire thing is image. They knew their son was doing drugs and dealing drugs. We even found a police report. He was arrested with a guy with drugs in the car. He was let go. Mm-hmm. The guy's name was Sean, uh, Sean Erickson, I believe. Uh, we have found multiple drug dealers who knew Scott very well and said flat out, yeah, I sold him this and I sold him that, and Crystal was right there with them. So they can lie all they want. The Macklems know their son was a drug dealer. Again, I don't care about that. But for them, this is about image. So if you make me the stalker boyfriend, then their son wasn't the drug dealer who was killed dealing drugs at the college. But we have a guy who, was, uh, who knows Gary Macklem, who also said Gary Macklem knew his son was using drugs and knew it very well, and the police knew it also, and so did the Port Huron Drug Task Force. So this is about covering up for a local mayor who's very powerful and very wealthy. He owns State Farm Insurances, I believe. He ran some, uh, we were told, I don't know for sure, I was told he ran some enormous property scams on his taxes, paying far less taxes than he should for a bunch of land he owns out there, farmland worth far more than he claims it is. And uh, we have some files on that. And, you know, he's been doing dirt for a long, long time. The Macklem family, their history is they were, uh, they were rum runners running bootleg alcohol uh, across the water between Canada and the U.S. I mean, this is a family with a storied history. And their son was uh, that Don Johnson guy with the sleeves pushed up, I guess. According to witnesses, he thought he was Rico Suave with the girls. And um, eventually he pissed some people off, and they were coming after him. And, they, and the family knew that, and the police knew that, and Robert Cleland knew that. So uh, they needed a patsy, and I became the patsy. So uh, I know you said earlier that some of the information is out there in documents, but yep. what was missing was all of this information coming from your mouth, yep. which we have now, which is fantastic. Right. Thank you. So what I want to ask you, uh, Temujin, is how happy were you with your defense initially? Well, um, I, you know, when I was a young man, I knew nothing about the system. And as I uh, mentioned to you when we first uh, spoke, uh, I, I believed in it. I, I really believed it would do the right thing. I, I stupidly, I naively thought there's no way anybody's going to believe that I did this. I kept waiting for them to come back to my cell and say, we've made a terrible mistake. We're so sorry. Or, you know, some drug guy would come forward and say, yeah, I know who Scott sh- shot Scott at the college or whatever. And, um, and that may have happened because they would hide it from us if it did. But... Um, I, I uh, reached out to a lawyer who wanted about fifty thousand um, dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even recall the gentleman's name, and of course I didn't have that. And um, I lived in a two hundred dollar a month farmhouse in the woods with my pregnant girlfriend. We were on welfare and food stamps. I had no income. By the and, way, um, sorry to interject yeah. here, but yeah. with all of this, what you're saying, the prosecutor yeah. had the audacity to say that you had the money to hire chartered planes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just for the record, this this chartered planes theory to show you how stupid this really is. The, what, the things involved in doing that are not as simple as just hiring a chartered plane. I have, remember, I have to have the money to convince a pilot to take his half a million or a million dollar airplane and fly to some secret 
you know, landing strip somewhere. This is before GPS now. So I don't even know how to tell this guy where to land. I guess I got to give him like latitude and longitude or something. Yeah. How, how, how I would map this out. Remember, I'm a 23-year-old kid with nothing. Now I go to this pond and go, okay, listen, I need you to just fly at 7,000 feet until I tell you to land. <laughs> yeah. You know, and this guy's going to be like, listen, who are you, you idiot? And then I get into his plane with like, I guess this duffel bag with a gun or something, you know. And, yeah. And, and whatever clothes Ridiculous, I'm wearing. Man. Who's going to do that, you know? And, and Cleveland yeah. acted like anybody would just do this. Yeah. Those planes are very expensive. So they figured out the amount of time it would take to fly this trip. And they, they're talking like a Beechcraft Bonanza or better. You know, which is like a half a million to a million dollars or something. Yeah. And so now I got to tell this guy, remember, it's a sub-zero morning. I got to get this guy to agree to take off in this plane. I don't even know how I get the guy. Again, no cell phones. What, is he just waiting at his house? Yeah. And so I go, yeah, meet me, meet me at your secret airplane place. And then we, I guess I leave whatever car I've got. And I fly down there. Now I got to go, okay, land. And he's going to go where? Oh, uh, you know, longitude 26, northwest, whatever. And um, he's not going to do that. And he's going to go, you want me to do what? You want me to land my plane where in a farm field? What are you, nuts, buddy? And remember, th this is supposed to be for a couple hundred dollars because their whole argument was, oh, no, you could do this for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. So now he lands his expensive plane, and I guess I just tell him, hey, keep the motor running while I go hang out in town for hours and kill this guy. Yeah. How do I get from the airplane to the college? Yeah, the only problem with this theory on the prosecution yeah. side was that they couldn't prove this. No. Yeah. You know, which, 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 which is a slap on their profession because yeah. when you prosecute, you need to prove what you're prosecuting uh, about, right. but they couldn't yep. do it. But going back to your defense, I, I yeah. cut you there. Continue, because yeah. I, what I wanted to get to is that yeah. you had a defense attorney who was on coke. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, as I said, I couldn't afford this lawyer. So then this lawyer just comes to see me in the jail. His name is David Michael Dean. And uh, he starts selling himself to me. He's like, oh, I'm a former prosecutor, and I've got my own law firm, and I know all these people, and I, I looked at this, and I don't think you did this, and, and uh, you're going to have a giant lawsuit, and I'm going to make you a million dollars, and you know, you're going to go home, and, and this is all going to be behind you. So I was like, you remember, I'm a, this little desperate kid. Yeah. This is, here's a shining beacon of light in my darkness. So um, he's... he's asking for some help with the case and he's asking what I have in the way of money and I have a lot of physical possessions but I don't have any any real money like $1,800 in my name in our total savings I think which I gave to Michelle to uh, to get a place to stay and so now we have nothing like I'm actually borrowing $50 at a time from this lawyer but um, what I didn't know was he was a crackhead so um, we now have articles showing that he was a druggie long before my case um, he had a cocaine conviction in 1985. Uh, my case was 1986, 1987. Um, by 84, he was massively addicted to crack cocaine. Um, and there's an article that actually says, cocaine nightmare, a living hell, you know, local lawyer tells his story. He was in the prosecutor's office using cocaine. Robert Cleland knew that. Um, the drug task force knew it. He was under investigation by Michigan's drug task force for uh, import Huron. We have reports on that. They let him serve as my lawyer, knowing he was a crackhead and a drunk. He was dallying with hookers, gang members, organized crime, you name it. He defended the cop in my case who framed me for murder, who was involved with the mob, and who was prosecuted for working in a mob-run establishment by Michigan Attorney General's office. He went to high school with that guy and defended him on his case before he came to me. So the whole thing was a setup. Literally, the man framing me for murder, Robert Cleland, was his boss, and the other man framing me for murder, John Mayer, the, uh, John Bounds, the officer, was his friend and his client. 
So I don't know any of this. I remember, I'm not from this area. I don't know any of these people. So I don't know any of this stuff. I'm just this little kid in a jail cell. So I don't find any of this out until private investigators come to me years later and go, hey, look at this. So um, he's coming to me, feeding me this nonsense. And then about the third visit, he asked me uh, if I can get him some cocaine. He goes, come on, you know, you're a singer in a heavy metal band. You've got a lot of girlfriends. You play guitar. You must have some drugs. And I'm like, dude, I'm a health nut. That's a big part of this case. I'm like a health nut. I don't do drugs. And uh, I got like a million bottles of vitamins and supplements and stuff. And I'm writing him all these letters about his health. And um, he goes, yeah, but you must know somebody. I'm like, no, I don't mess with drug people ever. No, I, you've met Tom and Shelly. I don't do drugs, and neither do they. And uh, he gets mad at me. And from that point on, he was just as crappy as can be. Now, what I don't know at this time is he's forged my name on some paperwork, and he's going into my storage bins, and he's stealing everything that Shelly and I own. And I mean everything. Man. Clothes, watches, tennis shoes. If he thought he could sell it for drugs, he got it. And I have his actual handwritten notes saying, look for his guitar, look for his amplifier, look for uh, his, his bow and his arrows, look for his watches, look for his leather jacket. Unbelievable. He has a friend named Gary Larson going to my storage bins down here, and then up north, a guy named Bruce, uh, I can't recall the guy's last name, he sends him to my storage bin up north, and these two guys clean out everything that I've got. They steal everything that I own in the world. I don't know any of this. Unbelievable. Yeah, I don't, I don't know any of this is going on. I don't find this out till I get to prison. And Shergar gets a hold of me and goes, hey, uh, you owe us $9,000 and, uh, and your bins are pretty much empty. And I called him and said, dude, what the hell? And he goes, oh, uh, well, I just took some stuff for payment. Anyways, prior to that, though, he, uh, he tells me I've got it all taken care of with the court and he has himself appointed as my lawyer. And then he's in court crying he doesn't have any money while he's stealing all my stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the court refuses to give us an eyewitness expert. They refuse to give us an expert on hypnosis. Now, the law is you're, you're entitled to these experts when these are part of the case. Uh, he, the lawyer refused to pay for anything. And um, then he brings in his girlfriend, Jan Barnum, after his secretary, Christine Moore, quits because of his drug use, which, again, I don't know at that time. Um, Christine's weeping on the phone one day and telling me she's not going to be taking my calls anymore. And I, I wish I could tell you, but she wouldn't. And then I found out later on she was paying his drug debts off for him. So he brings in his girlfriend, who's a crackhead, Janice Barnum, um, who he's having a physical relationship with, and he gets the court to appoint her as some kind of pseudo-investigator, and then she spends all her time going to motel rooms with him and getting high with him and uh, living off the proceeds of my stuff that he stole and sold with her. So, you know, and doing a terrible job on the case. Unbelievable. So they're not calling. They're not calling my witnesses. They're not getting my evidence. They're not getting my receipts. You know, Shelley's doing everything, and she's working in Dave's office. And she's coming back to me, and she's writing me and saying, "Listen, he's he's drunk. He's reeking of alcohol. He's whacked out of his mind. Uh, he's not doing anything." And uh, Shelley was basically doing all the work on the case. Then he starts telling me that I've got to do my own legal work. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about the law. So I fight with the jail guards, and they finally let me into this tiny little joke of a law library, and I don't know what I'm doing. And he's sitting there going, give me something on uh, motion and limine. I don't know how motion and limine is. And, um, yeah, I had to go do all my own research. I'm just, like, writing all these cases down that I think sound like my case. And I – listen, just so you know, Imran, (laughs) not only do I still have all those notes, Paula has copies of them all, my original notes from 1986 and 87, proving what I'm telling you now. I had to do all my own work on my case. I had to do. We need to publish them. Oh, I had to do everything. I had to do the theory of the case. I had to help him write arguments. I had to do everything, and um, he's just getting more and more stoned and drunk and and belligerent and talking crazy. 
They monitored all my attorney calls. There's actual notes admitting they did this with the officer writing down what I said to my lawyer in a logbook. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we have the logs where Officer Jerry Reinhardt was monitoring my attorney calls and then giving the notes to the prosecutor's office. Now, I think everybody out there knows that's illegal. You can't listen to an attorney phone call or an attorney interview. <laughs> Yeah. No, mine were all monitored, and Man. they uh, they starved me in the jail. I lost about probably 50 pounds. They wouldn't let me bathe. Um, I had to beg and plead with officers that maybe once a week to get into a shower they had in a little uh, maintenance area uh, because I wasn't allowed to shower. I was just kept locked down. I wasn't allowed to have recreation. Uh, they took away my visits. I didn't get any misconduct or anything. They just took. They, I had a, the only thing I had was a Bible. They took that from me. I wasn't allowed any books. Mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed to read. Um, I wasn't given any health care, except when they tried to put me on psychotropic meds, and I figured out what they were. So um, then they forced me to grow my hair and my beard, and they tried to bring in a professional barber to change my appearance. My lawyer let all of this go on. We have all the notes that I sent him about this. We have the notes with Cleland's sending these special orders to abuse me. Mm -hmm. And we have the jail notes where they were doing all the abuse. And my lawyer did nothing about any of this. So probably two months in, I knew he was setting me up. And there was nothing I could do about it. I was locked in isolation. I had nobody to help me. And Shelly was hiding up in Flint. And um, the kids up north, uh, my alibi witnesses, they didn't know what was going on. I couldn't contact them. And uh, they took me into this trial. They just railroaded me through it. And I sat there in shock. And at the end, I was like, my testimony to the judge is actually, I can't believe you think I had anything to do with this crime. I don't understand any of this. This is insane. And um, jurors were weeping. And, um, you know, a lot of them refused to speak years later, but one of them did, Richard Pellegrin. And he specifically said, no, no, there was no evidence, but we thought maybe he could have done it. That's his actual quote. Yeah. How was the behavior of the prosecutors? Uh, it, It was insane. The, the whole trial was about making me look like a bad guy. So it was what they call uncharged misconduct. It was basically trying to put people on the stand to say bad things about me. So they spent a year now. They took my phone books, which no, no warrant, just took, called every girl I ever knew, called every friend I ever had to try to get any of them to say something bad about me. And they found like three people you know, to say something bad about me. So they brought in a girl named Lori Ciccarelli who claimed no knowledge of the crime to say, well, she lived with me for a couple of months and I had a duffel bag with some hard objects in it. Well, I actually have a lot of martial arts equipment and Shelly was there at that time and that's what that was. But I'm sitting back going, wait a minute, hold on, what's that proof of? Did, are you saying I had a gun? Oh no, no, I never saw a gun. Did you see ammo? You ever see me shoot? Threaten anybody with a gun? Pull a gun out? Was the bag locked? Was the closet it was in locked? No, no, and no. So you never saw any guns? You just saw a duffel bag in my, in my closet? Yeah. That was, a wit- that was actually one of their witnesses. She claimed no knowledge about anything having to do with the crime. She just came to say I had a duffel bag in a closet. This is a year and a half before the murder. And the reason that matters, we lost everything in that apartment. Everything in that apartment we lost in an impound lot. So Lori Ciccarelli knew that duffel bag was long gone because she was there when the duffel bag was stolen from the impound lot. So it obviously wasn't the gun that killed Scott. But more importantly, their witness, Tom Ford, lived with me at that time and said I never had a shotgun, I never had shells, I never said a word about Scott, and I, we never left to come downstairs in state and harass anybody. So again, their own witness, who was only there to attack my character and say I had a lot of girlfriends and I was a good martial artist, even he claimed no knowledge of the crime. Obviously, Michelle, to this day, is one of my you know, biggest defenders, and she's not going to be defending me 35 years later if I'm a murderer. She's a very devout Christian. She runs a, a big martial arts school down in Florida. 
she would she would not be lying for me 35 years later mm-hmm. and uh so that was the trial though was just beating me up and putting me down so crystal came in and told crazy stories about me just insane stories mind control powers uh i can jump 40 feet out of a tree we all know that's humanly impossible um i can i can dodge bullets um i kill police with steel claws and i'm sitting there going are there a lot of unsolved cop murders with steel claws in Michigan right now. And like, people are laughing at me when I'm saying this. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. She just said that under oath. She was insane. She watched a lot of uh, uh, horror movies or fiction movies to be, to be coming up with this kind of a thing. Well, that's an excellent point. She worked in a video store. She worked in Grove Video. Oh. And we later found out that most of her testimony came from movies like um, a movie called Turk 182, uh-huh. which I've never seen, and another one called Tough Turf, which I've never seen. And... Um, Then she watched ninja movies, uh-huh. and so she was actually testifying about all this ninja stuff. Now, again, they did two massive warrantless searches. The first one was seven hours. They destroyed my home, my storage facility, my barn, my car, and guess what they found? Absolutely nothing, including nothing described by Crystal. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is, just, this is just what they do. And, uh, and they admitted that. They didn't find any of that stuff. So what they did was they took her to a martial arts store. And, and we have the photographs from this. And they had her pick out things. And she was so dumb. She was picking out, like, things from India that have nothing to do with, like, ninjas and martial arts. She was picking Chinese kung fu stuff out. It was crazy. And um, I have the actual photos from that, too. So, like, they went to a, a martial arts store called Dragon Imports. And, and then they took photographs of, like, little throwing stars. And she'd go, yeah, yeah, he had those. You know, he had those right there. It, it, was, it was insane. She claimed I had secret bank accounts. Now, bear in mind, <laughs> Shelly and I are on food stamps. We're literally living off the largesse of others. And, and uh, you know, Shelly's pregnant, and we live in this dumpy little $200 a month farmhouse out in, uh, with propane gas out in the middle of the woods. And I'm driving this beater Mercury Marquis, but now I suppose he has secret bank accounts. So <laughs> she claimed they were at Citizens Bank. They went to these banks. No, no, they're showing my photos around. No, absolutely not. None of this is true. She just, she just kept making things up. Why were they doing this to you, man? Because the whole goal was very simple. When you, when you demonize somebody, you incite the jury. You, you make them so angry at you. Remember, this is 1986 and 1987. This is back when they were still holding hearings to try to ban profanity on records. They're called the PMRC hearings. So this is a very different time. And uh, I'm singing in a band. I'm singing like Journey and Billy Idol, stuff like that. Yeah. And they implied that I was like the lead singer for Slayer. And that was all that Satan <laughs> stuff. And that was big in the 80s, you know. I had a little meditation altar in my home. And it had incense and flowers and uh, fruit on it, right? And I had a little, uh, a little Japanese meditation scroll there about peace and harmony. And um, so it was like my little meditation area. You know, I was studying Eastern faiths. And um, obviously I was not a Satanist at that point. I didn't even believe in a, in, a, in a deity of any kind when I was practicing an Eastern religion. But um, now I have an altar in my home. Ooh, and it's the 80s. So I had a bunch of health food products. I'm a health nut. I still am to this day. So uh, ready for this? Now remember, I started a little health food business. I had ready, hundreds of bottles of unidentified substances. Well, obviously if you thought I had drugs, you'd have tested them and you'd have charged me with drug crimes. Mm. So every time they would do this, I'd have to come back and go, hold on a minute. You talk about all the vitamins with the labels, you know. And I'm an Army Discharge veteran, so now I'm Rambo. Unbelievable. Now I'm Rambo, and I'm going to get a machine gun, and I'm going to shoot the – this is Rambo 1 back then. So I'm going to get the machine gun. I'm going to shoot up the entire town when I get out of jail. 
you know, after I escape. I mean, it just, it never stopped. Yeah. So they literally took all the good things in my life. Like I have never been accused of a martial arts related crime or using martial arts to hurt somebody, but they made that a bad thing. I don't take, I don't use drugs. I, I, I make green drinks. Now I'm some crazy hippie nut job who takes potions. Um, I have a meditation altar, which is about being peaceful. And, you know, mm-hmm. now I'm a Satanist. I sing in a rock and roll band. You know, now I'm, the, like I said, the lead singer for Slayer. There's a, it, was, it was insane. But it is insane because it has nothing to do with the, with the case in question. You know, I mean, exactly. where is all the investigation? In, in, where is all the investigation? I mean, it, right. it's clear that they were not looking for the truth. They were looking for a conviction. God only right. knows why. Right. But yeah. what about the media? What the hell was the media doing in, in nothing, all of that? Uh, nothing. I, I wrote so many people. We still have, amazingly, we still have this letter that I wrote to the media. It's like seven pages pleading with them, just come look at this story. And the only media coverage that I got that I know of at that time was the Port Huron Times-Herald, which uh, there was a guy named John Brown. So it was John Bounds is the dirty cop in this case. John Browns is the dirty reporter. This guy was writing these just vilifying articles. And he was that guy that would like stand outside the jail and call me names, you know, like, hey, scumbag murderer. You know, so I would look at him. He could get a photo of me. Mm-hmm. So there's this photo of me, like my hands over my face. He got all pissed off. He was actually grabbed me. and was trying to pull my hands away from my face. It was, this guy was nuts. He was horrible. This is a guy writing articles saying, you know, killer says I'll get you. That never happened. You know, killer vows vengeance or whatever. He would just, just lie, you know, or he'd say my witnesses weren't sure if they saw me. Every single witness was absolutely sure. And they all had a reason why they saw me that day. So the kids, they skipped school that particular day. Kathy only taught that Wednesday class. Mark Sherman had a PTA meeting that day and so on. So um, they knew exactly what day I saw these people and that they saw me up north. And uh, the media wouldn't help me at all. And um, now here's the thing, though. In their defense, over the years, the Port Huron Times-Herald's management turned over. And they were very, very supportive for me for a long time. And then they, they kind of stopped defending me about probably about two, three years ago. They were going to do a bunch of stuff, and they were talking to me, and then they just kind of cut me off. And I think it was pressure from the St. Clair County Prosecutor's Office. They were mad about all the positive articles. But the paper actually wrote some very positive articles, and the uh, former editor, Angela Mullins, had said to my wife, you know, we literally helped frame an innocent man, and Angela was great. She's not there anymore, but she was great. So they did try to do some, um, you know, some long-term damage control later on. Right now, they're not really they – just, they just do general stuff now, you know, like – Yeah, you know, Freeman, Freeman loses bid for you know a commutation or whatever. Yeah, I would never even say that. You know, free Temujin Kenso. I'll say justice for Temujin Kenso, and that's what I advise everyone: take this word out of the dictionary, because <laughs> when you use the word free, you're you're yeah. subliminally saying that he's accused, he's he's guilty right. of something. But the justice yeah. hasn't been served, so it should be justice for Temujin Kenso. Well, thank you, not any, thank any you. not anything else. But what I want to do ask you who do you think should be held accountable for what happened in your case well you know almost every single person did this to me has passed away uh my my dirty judge died uh almost every crooked cop in this case um including uh prosecutor thomas houlihan my lawyer died my lawyer um david dean went on to become a massive even more massive crackhead he was caught transporting a woman to a drug house on multiple occasions lied about that during an investigation, eventually lost his uh, right to practice as an attorney, um, went down to Florida and became some kind of a half-assed math teacher for a while. And then he uh, started having uh, sex with little girls in, I think it was Cambodia. 
and he spent his dying days with little girls in Cambodia, and he died over there of a heart attack a couple years back. His Facebook was nothing but like like little 12 and 13 year old hookers all dolled up. It was just it was disgusting. I, it was disgusting. The guy was just a monster in, in every possible way. And I saw his Facebook page when he died, and it was these these young girls. You can see they were absolutely underage and all dolled up, so probably you know prostitutes. And unfortunately, in poor countries like that, you know, a man like him can go over there and for a small amount of money, mm. you know live like a, a very a very evil despot or I don't even want to use the word king and um, so Philip Joplin who uh, you know helped set me up passed away and um, the uh, prosecutor Thomas Houlihan passed away John Bounds the dirty cop and his partner Harry Hudson passed away uh, the dirty cop Dave Hall I just mentioned who was originally helping Crystal frame me he just passed away so right now the only people left are uh, Crystal and Robert Cleland pretty much uh, as far as those responsible and they will be meeting their creator very soon the judge of all oh, yeah. judges and then we will yeah. decide what happens because you can't get away from the judgment of god no no it, it it's i've been i've been blessed to outlive so many of the horrible people that did this and uh, the only thing that saddens me is I, i'm sure i'm not the only person they've done horrible things too um john bounds actually is believed to have murdered people he was we have found drug dealers that john bounds was the guy you paid to pull evidence out of the evidence room to make drugs and weapons go away and to make people go away. And we had a very high-level drug dealer tell us that uh, that he absolutely believed John Bounds had killed people. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of unsolved murders in that area, too. Now, uh, just so everyone knows, the former chief homicide detective, Herb Welser, is one of my best defenders. Great man of God. And mm-hmm. just, uh, to me, this guy's a hero. He's had to stand, he's had to stand against his own county and he is vilified by people that he, you know, that he worked for for many, many years and who always trusted his judgment. He's treated horribly by them. Former prosecutors down there treat him like garbage. This is a great man of faith, a great man in the church. Um, he, he's such a gentle soul. And uh, I hope you get to speak to him someday. He's such a kind person. He just came to visit me again recently. He's just an amazing person. Um, you know, we prayed together and he's been fighting for me for 15 years I think at least yeah and um, he is he has been so abused and he will not give up and he's generated a massive support base for me in uh, city officials local attorneys the just so everyone knows the people of Port Huron have been for the most part wonderful I have gotten so many blogs and so many supporters out of Port Huron who said the same thing uh, it's so corrupt down here we have a mafia-like mentality these prosecutors and judges are incredibly corrupt the cops are crooked there's murders and drugs everywhere you know the mob controlled that area the banana crime family controlled that area for a long time mm-hmm. and John Bounds was involved with the mob we know that for a fact so uh, because he was actually prosecuted for working in a mob run establishment by the Attorney General's office so um, the people down there have been amazing. And, of course, you know, Paula's from that area, too. And the funny thing was, when uh, Paula and I first started writing, she had told her mother about me. And her mother, who had never mentioned me, said, oh, my God, I know all about that case. That guy's innocent. And she goes, really, Mom? And she's, he's like, oh, he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. There's so much stuff online. You have to go look it up. And so Paula spent, like, hours yeah. you know, reading all this stuff. And then she reached out to me. She'd seen an article about me in the paper. Um, uh, it was um, – but for my 33rd uh, Christmas in prison. And um, she felt so bad, she wrote me a letter and just said, I don't know what kind of support base you have, but if you need a friend, I'm here for you. 
And, um, you know, I get a lot of letters like that, and I always appreciate them, and I write, I write almost everybody back and at least send them a thank you card or something. And, um, but I wound up striking up a, a friendship with her, and, um, you know, I'd been nursing the loss of my wife for seven years. And uh, I, I prayed, you know, hey, you know, God, uh, if it's time, I'm lonely and I'm sad, and uh, I, I need that part of my life to be, you know, to be filled up. And um, she appeared, and I, I can't say it. She was, she was. There's no way to say it. she was the perfect person for me. Yeah. We uh, we say, you know, we say kala, you know, in in Hebrew, which means um, the perfect wife, and it's using a lot of faiths actually. And uh, God, I think God sometimes says, hey, you know what? You've been through enough. Here's a little something for you. <laughs> and uh, like yeah. I said at the top of the conversation, that I feel that uh, God sent Paula as mercy to you. Absolutely, she has been, and she has been a mercy too. And you know, it's not just that. It's it's uh, we as inmates, we live vicariously through everybody out there. So I love hearing from people like you and the things that you do because I can kind of visualize that myself. So you know, we had a dog, and um, I couldn't. I was dying to get home to the dog, and I knew the dog was an old girl, and she wasn't going to live much longer. And she was such a sweetheart, and she got so sick uh, May of last year. Uh, I'm sorry, May of this year. And um, sadly, she started having seizures, and uh, and we lost her, and um, very quickly too. And it was it just broke Paula's heart. So um, you know, she didn't want to get another dog because it hurt so much. And, and finally, I kind of put my foot down one day, and um, I had won a lawsuit, and I gave her some money. And you know, she'd spent a fortune taking care of me and helping me. And so I said, go get go get some go get a dog. And she got these two just gorgeous little uh, Yorkie Havanese pups, cutest things in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I live, you know, I, I live that with her. I talk to the dogs. I listen to them yip and yap on the phone, and they. Uh, I have pictures of them watching me on the on the phone, and you know. Then she got a third one recently, a little baby and a little baby Yorkie, and um, you know now they're a little they're a little troop. And so uh, the joy that God gave me through her is not just this friend and this supporter and this comfort and this person that I'm you know crazy head over heels in love with, but also uh, a person who makes me laugh and smile, you know. Every day, every time we speak, we, I, I'm, I'm laughing every phone call. Mm-hmm. She's got an amazing sense of humor, and um, you know we, we really click. And I ask how the dogs are doing. She brings them to the phone. I listen to them barking and yipping and yapping. I send them some of my dirty clothes just they could smell me, and now they lay on the clothes all the time. You know, I send them some sweatpants and a sweatshirt and a towel, and uh, you know nothing too grungy, nothing gross. But yeah, and they lay on them all the time. A lot of people have been arguing that you know there's a lot of racism in the U.S. justice system, but your yeah. case is, is is different. We can't even say that it's racism because you're white. Yeah. So are we saying that the United States criminal justice system is actually an unjust system? It's an, it's an absolutely unjust system, and and part of the problem is they've gotten away with it for so long, and we all know it. You know, we've we become so divided as a nation that we can't talk about anything now without it becoming political. And that breaks my heart because, you know, just five years ago, it wasn't like this. If you get into, you know, what happened in January 6th and then all the protests, you have the side that goes, okay, those are peaceful protests. And then the other side goes, no, they were burning cities down. And then January 6th is the worst thing that ever happened on the planet. No, it's not. Our buildings were blown up and 3,000 people were killed. That's not the worst thing that ever happened. We've become so partisan and so divided, and it, it, it kills me. Because when you become partisan like that, you cannot fix the problems. And even criminal justice has become partisan. You know, Trump started doing some things on criminal justice, but we expected Obama to do so much. I really believe when he came into office, I was totally suckered. 
I was I thought, you know what? Here's a man that came from, you know, I thought a relatively poor background and he lived in, you know, other countries. He was in a madrasa and then he came to the US, he became a senator, he lived in Chicago. I thought he would be like the guy that would just start laying out reforms. I was sure of it. And I didn't mean just for me because I didn't think the president was going to let me go. But I thought he would start doing criminal justice reform and sentencing reforms and, you know, protecting the rights of defendants and he did nothing except for the little bit of releases he did on crack. And then he gave like 80 billion extra dollars to the Bureau of Prisons. So that was a huge eye opener because that was the first time I put my stock in a president. And I said, he's going to fix this stuff. He's going to fix the omnibus crime bill, which was that was horribly racist. And the effect was racist. He's going to fix the AEDPA. He's going to fix the PLRA, which took our inmate right to litigate and made lawyers basically not want to help us anymore because they took all the money from them. And um, he didn't. And so then, you know, when Trump came in, that partisanship, that divide became so enormous. You know, the people hated Trump so much. And there's no question he was his own worst enemy. But people hated him so much. The left wouldn't work with him and the right thought, well, we're in charge now. We can do what we want. But Trump actually started doing some things on criminal justice reform. And I remember tweeting and people like getting mad at me. And I was like, hey, he's letting innocent people go. He's going to do something for the elderly. He's reforming the, the Bureau of Prisons. He's making these different criteria, but he's still executing people. I'm not implying he was perfect by any means or that he's the second coming. He was just doing something. And so I thought, you know, the Democrats would jump on that and say, you know, what? we're going to take the steam and the thunder from him. We're going to start doing a bunch of criminal justice stuff. Nope. So when Biden came in, he had gotten beat up about, you know, his work on the omnibus crime bill, which was a horrible bill and it was terribly racist. And he and he said some very racist things when he was in office about black thugs and everything else. And so did Hillary Clinton, for that matter. I thought Joe would undo some of that damage, and instead he did things right away that more division, you know, the, the transgender thing with women's sports the first day in office. That's not what America was waiting for. All those young kids that were rioting and burning cities and complaining about police brutality, for example, were expecting criminal justice reform. You know, When our governor came in and Snyder left and his Democratic governor came in, we thought criminal justice reform is now going to happen. And it didn't. And she did nothing and he did nothing. And that's the thing that I really don't understand. The, the left can blame the right all day, but if you're not going to fix the things, you don't have the right to say anything. Yeah. And so some of the left are making, making noise. You know, Cory Bush is making some noise, and you know, Rashida Tlaib is making some noise. But even the squad is being way too quiet. Now, I did see Ayanna Presley on C-SPAN give an amazing speech on criminal justice issues and prison and reforms and sentencing. It was, it was phenomenal, a phenomenal program she did. I was, I was actually surprised. I had no idea she was that versed in the subject. But even then, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, Whitmer's going on about, you know, uh, acting on her better angels. And, uh, you know, it's time to run for a second term, and she's done nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Except for the Clean Slate Act, which wasn't her bill. And that lets you get some of your old cases uh, dismissed. And um, so, you know, now we have this chance. And, you know, there's the thing that troubles me, Imran, is it's not happening. Yeah. The kids are rioting, they're, they're burning down cities, whatever. Nothing's getting fixed. BLM's threatening to burn down New York. Nothing's changing. Yeah, yeah because it's yeah. all a part of the same cabal. And, and you right. know, at the end of the day, they, all, they might fight each other in front of the cameras, but at the end of the right. day, they go break bread together and exactly. have their wine together. But, right. what do you, but the fact is that the, the criminal justice system does not have an inbuilt 
strong support mechanism to help those who are innocent so what no, do you none. think it's not it's there's none there's none yeah. so what yeah. do you think it's going to take to reform this unjust criminal system the, the, the reforms that are seriously needed are, well, first off, I have a simple rule about life. I've, 95% of all problems are fixable. There's a 5% you can't fix, but 95% of all problems are fixable if we disagree to fix them. The problem is we, we talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. We don't fix a damn thing. It's kind of like uh, explaining to a starving person why they're starving by giving them a six-hour diatribe on supply chains and economics. Yeah. And, and I have a degree in economics. Nobody wants to hear me blather on about economics when they're starving. What they really want is a cheeseburger. Yeah. So I could take my $5 and buy them a cheeseburger. I could talk their ear off. What we do, sadly, is we talk everybody's ear off, and we make promises, and we get budgets, and we get funds, and we, we push our agendas, and we swear we're going to be the one that does something different, and then 90% of the time, we don't do that. So one great example is that when you come to prison, there's, there's no way for you to learn the law, to become a lawyer, unless somebody on the outside gives you a giant pile of money to pay for you to get some kind of mail-order prison law degree, which will take you four years, and then another 10 years refining the process. Now, we have, a, we have an indigent appellate system, but the fact is, in a lot of states, it's terrible. When we had it in Michigan, at first, it was horrible. Um, I, had a, I had a lawyer who really believed in my innocence, Ralph Simpson, and I'm eternally grateful to Ralph, but he would not listen to me, and he would not raise the issues that were critical in my case. And when I won that habeas, it was the seven issues that Ralph Simpson refused to raise. So, you know, in 1988, I sat down with this man, said I talked to some old-timers, and this is all they do. And some of these guys have gotten 50 people out of prison. And he said, well, why are they still in prison themselves? And I said, because they'll tell you, some guys cannot get out of prison. One of the smartest guys I ever met was a guy named Bill Ramsey. But he killed a federal bank guard, and he killed a witness in a case, and he was the first one to tell you, I can't get out of prison, and even if I could, the feds would just come get me, and they would give me life and probably execute me. So I'm going to die in prison. But he became an amazing lawyer, and he reviewed my case, and he said, here's your issues. And um, it, it was an honor just to have a guy like that do that for a little fish like me. But he listened to me ramble on about my innocence, and he said, you know what? I've been listening to this shit for 30 years. You, I think you're telling the truth. And he listened. So he read my stuff, and I went out, and I met this lawyer in 88, and I said, this guy, he works for you guys as an inmate. He's that good. He writes briefs for Sato, State Appellate Defender's Office. Mm. Here's what he says my issues are. And he goes, yeah, well, I know you guys all come to prison, and you think you're learning the law. And I said, no, no, I, this guy's been doing this for 30 years, longer than you, buddy. And he says, these are my issues. Well... Ralph was wrong and Bill Ramsey was right, and in 2010, those are the issues that I won on. The same ones that in 1988, Bill said, you need to have a lawyer raised for you. And uh, guess what, Imran? I, I did that on my own because my lawyers wouldn't listen. Now, John Mayer was great. He listened. He tried. But everybody else told me I was wrong, and uh, it was a waste of time. John did my state appeals, but not my federal appeal. So on my habeas, I fired my habeas lawyer, um, who was a, a very nice guy, but he would not listen. And I did the habeas myself, and I won. And I, I'm not bragging. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a, not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a prison lawyer. I've been a successful civil litigant. I am not a criminal lawyer. But I realized that just like what I'm doing with you now, what I had to do with the judge was tell the story of the case. And so that's what I did. Instead of throwing a bunch of law at a judge, you're not going to impress a judge with law. Impress the judge with facts. Here's all the facts. And the attorney general's office at that time, under Bill Schuette, had a fit. They went nuts. Mike Cox and Bill Schuette. They went nuts. 
and they fought me, and they lied. They made up so many lies. They started their brief off by saying that three witnesses watched me gun down Scott Macklin with a sawed-off shotgun. Not a single word of that was true. That's how they started their brief. Mm -hmm. So I told the judge, everything you just read in these 50 pages is a lie. And I went back and I countered every single lie. It was 83 pages of it. Every single lie. And everybody said, she's not going to let you do that. You can't do that. And she did. And I got all those lies on the record, and I, and I busted them for every lie. Here's the transcript page. Here's the report. Here's the witness. Here's the evidence. And they stopped lying at that point while I was doing the case. Now they're back to lying again. Now, not under Dana Nessel, but the previous administration. So when we had the appeals with the photos, they went back to lying about everything again because, you know, I wasn't handling that. Um, and that's not, and again, that's not an attack on U of M. But U of M has a job to do. They can't do what I can do. They have to go in front of that court every single day. They can't go in there and call everybody a scumbag and a liar and say they're part of the system. I had the freedom to say things that a lot of lawyers just would not say. Mm. And so I was able to call out the AG because uh, I knew they were never going to support my release at that time. And I had, a, I, had a, I, had the author I had the freedom to call out Robert Cleel and say he's a scumbag and he shouldn't be on that bench. And I'm, I'm sorry you're in the same building with this weasel. Mm. And... Uh, and she knew the man. Obviously, she knew him as a man. She knew him as a judge. And I have to believe, though I, I don't know because she's not allowed to talk to me about it, I have to believe that she knew he was a scumbag. Mm -hmm. I have to believe there's a part of her who was like, I've watched this sleazeball in my court for years. Of course. <laughs> everything that Mr. Kensu says he is and worse, and I don't have any problem believing that he did any of this crap. Even to this day, he's a smartass in his opinions, and he's insulting and degrading. You know, he tried to get a Chaldean guy, a very high-ranking Chaldean mafia member, to help set me up. The guy's name was Ray Akrawi. His real name was uh, Rajid Akrawi. There's a published opinion where Rajid Akrawi said Robert Cleland called me in and wanted me to say that this Kensu guy was involved with the Chaldean mafia. This is a true story. And again, for all the listeners, this is a matter of record. I'll happily give you the case citation. Man. And Rajid Akrawi called Robert Cleland out. I had no idea this was going on. I met Rajid later. I had no idea this was going on. And he said, this guy tried to get me to set up this guy that I don't even know and I've never even met. When I met this guy, he came to me and said, dude, man, Robert Cleland, he called me in and he tried to get me to set you up because I was doing some criminal business in that area. And he wanted me to say you were working with the Chaldean Mafia. I said, you, are you freaking serious? I'm a 23-year-old punk kid living in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. There's no Chaldean Mafia up there. That's like Detroit, okay? I, I'm not from Detroit. Why is this a, a prosecutor and now a judge? Why was he after you so personally? Well, it's, it's not personal. It's covering up what he did. It's, it's, I was just a patsy. This is, uh, people always ask if I feel this was personal. It wasn't personal. I was just easy. They didn't know me from Adam till John Bounds heard Crystal's sister, Tracy Merrill, mention my name. Yeah. And say, well, Crystal used to date this crazy motorcycle martial arts guy. And John said, tell me all about him. Yeah, which, which points to the fact which you noted earlier that this, was, this has been going on, not just, before, not just in your case, but before your case and probably oh, yeah. on, a, on, on a regular basis until oh, yeah. they get caught. Yeah, yeah. See, you know, the average person that's framed for a crime does a specified amount of time and gets out. So I, I know a guy named Ed Rohn, for example. He went to a prison for uh, uh, shoplifting in a store. He's, he's on video. They know it's not him. 
they tell him basically, well, go ahead and fight us. You're going to go to prison anyways. You can hag it out on the appeal process. What arrogance, man. Yeah, and so he just pled out. What arrogance. Yeah, man. he pled out. Yeah, and his family got the video later on, and it's absolutely not Ed, and it's too late because Ed pled guilty, so there's nothing he can really do about it, you know. Um, that's, that's the system. That's the system. Now, now, I want everybody to understand, because, you know, St. Clair County just insisted that I die in prison. There's a, there's, there's a reason why that matters. They offered me two sentencing deals. They had David Dean come to me with two deals. Uh, they, they deny it all the time now, but it's, they, they can't lie about it because there's letters I wrote Shelley about the deals, which we still have the original letters on the jail stationery. But anyways, um, the first deal was a 15 to 25, and then they came. Then Dean came back so I can get you a 10 to 15. So you go, oh, my God, 10 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. Well, no. In 1986 in Michigan, I would have had a year in the county jail, so that's nine years. Then we had what was called good time back then, where you would take about a third of the sentence right off. So that takes a sentence to write down about six years. Now, Michigan prison system was so overcrowded back then that our governor, Jim Blanchard, did what were called executive emergency time cuts, 90 days each. And he did like five or six of those. So there's another year and a half, two years off my sentence. Then they calculate my good time, plus the year, plus the special time cuts. And then in Michigan, we have what were called correction centers. Basically a building you go and live in, you can go out and work in the day and you report back at night and you sleep there. And we also had furloughs, you could go home for the weekend. And we had a camp system where there was no fences, no armed guards, you could just pretty much walk away. Now that's how the system was back then. So if I had taken that 10 year deal, I would have been out of prison in, with a good behavior in about a year and a half. I would have been in a correction center. Why didn't you take any plea deal? Well, because I was innocent. I didn't do it. There's no way I was gonna plead guilty to murder. I mean, once you do that, as far as I'm concerned, your life is over. Remember, I was, I was not some you know, criminal guy out there living the criminal life. I'm thinking like a citizen. I didn't do this. This is wrong. I'm not pleading to a murder I didn't commit. I'm not saying I killed some guy I didn't kill. This is insane. I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And um, so I stood up. Also, my lawyer's going, you know, the whole story about how oh, you're going to win. You're going to have a giant lawsuit. You're going to get a million dollars. It's called malicious prosecution. He's talking me out of this at the same time. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that when your lawyer talks you out of a really great plea bargain, you can get it overturned, get your case overturned just on that alone. Yeah, thrown out you know. of the case. Yeah, it's called the, the Cooper ruling. That actually came from Michigan from a guy I was with. That, that Just by coincidence, that case came from Michigan, too. So the point was, they didn't think that I was such a threat that I, I, could, I could be back on the streets in a year or two. I could have gone to a correction center. Four years from my first out date, with all those calculations, I was almost ready to go home. So, if they didn't think I should die in 1986, it's 35 years later, why are they still trying to keep me in here? Now, the second reason this matters is in murder, which is obviously heinous no matter what version it comes in, there are things called aggravating factors. So when they decide the penalty for a homicide, it's not always natural life. Sometimes you get a 10 to 15, a 5 to 10, who knows? There's plea bargains, there's various versions of the charge. They still mean somebody killed somebody. So. In Michigan, I have zero aggravating factors. So there's all these things they add up to decide how bad your crime was. Uh, was, ex was excessive force used beyond that necessary to kill the person? Man. So there are all these factors. Did you kidnap the person first? Did you hurt other people? Did you do it in the presence of other people? I have zero aggravating factors. So what this means is if I were guilty, which I'm not, I have the lowest score you can possibly get, and I am serving the ultimate maximum sentence you can get in this state. So having the lowest score and the least heinous version of a heinous crime, 
I'm serving more time than 95% of the people who've committed far more brutal versions of the same crime in Michigan. And that's simply because, as everyone says, I'm a political prisoner. This has nothing to do with the crime. This has nothing to do with what happened to Scott Macklin. They never cared about Scott Macklin one bit, and they don't care about him now. This is about covering up what they did, and their hope is that I will die in here. And they hope that administration after administration down there prays that eventually Kensu's going to kick off. He's got immune disease. We found out he's got a bad heart. He got COVID, which I did. Uh, he's going to die. I'm on chemo now. I take, I take a chemo for immune disease. And I've got a mountain of health problems. They're hoping that he's going to die any day now. The call's going to come. He's dead, and we got away with it. You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net.